Welcome to a very special episode of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg. You are Courtney Nguyen. Courtney, hello. Hello, Ben. We are sort of here. This is a, it's like a it's like a uniquely unique episode of NCR that sort of is directly us taking a Twitter thread that we started with each other and then everybody weighed in on um, and make, giving it sort of space to breathe after uh, your tweets from a few days ago now about um, Lina, who people may or may not know you are an admirer and fan of, um, and, <laughs> yes. how, and how you thought that she was like a lock to be one of the 10 most important uh, women in tennis history. And I was sort of, and I sort of saw that tweet hours later and um, was like, ooh, I'll, I'll come up with my list of 10 women. And then all hell fairly quickly broke loose in my mentions. It really and, did. And yours, because I think yours are probably in there. Too. <laughs> so sorry and about I, that. I, and I was like, you guys, like, I didn't, people were yelling at me about a list that I didn't even put out in public. Like, they're like, what do you mean? Like, this person's not on your list. I'm like, that's Ben. That's not me. Why are you including me in this? And I think specifically, too, when I started this all, because I had just been, uh, the ITF had put out a, a really nice video, um, kind of summarizing Lena's career and her mm -hmm. impact. Um, and I just spoken to Lena in Melbourne when she was there for the Hall of Fame induction, or not induction stuff, but announcement because yeah. she will be in Newport this summer um, Hall of to be inducted. Lock Lena, let's be clear. Hall of Fame Lock Lena, exactly. Um so she's just been on my mind lately and um and uh, yeah, but I had specifically said, especially in my follow up tweet, kind of saying that I I would I could make a very good argument, I think, that she would be on the WTA Mount Rushmore, mm -hmm. which I would say is a is a five, a list of five. Okay. And we'll get to that list. Yeah, and I and I think I, I'm almost positive that I put out like, and I'm not gonna make that list because I don't, I'm not going to get into an argument. <laughs> and so, <laughs> like, so then Ben wakes up and then I go to sleep and I wake up and I'm like, what's going on with my mission? Oh, Twitter. Oh, uh, sorry. No, I mean, and, and this is a, this is a uniquely like interesting thing to me. Like, this was like not me just sort of taking bait for the sake of taking bait, which I'm, you know happy to do on Twitter. I don't really take bait. I'm more of a throw out bait. But um, is that this like, it's such an in inherently like subjective and interesting, like kind of like bar stool, not like the website got like, um, they wouldn't care. Oh, geez. Like, <laughs> no, like, like, you know, like around a dinner table, around drinks kind of debate. And like, it's so inherently subjective that it's mainly interesting to me. And I knew in my list of 10 that I came up with, I knew which one was going to get reactions from people of my 10 and we'll get to her in a bit <laughs> and like within hours news.com.au had a story about oh my lord news.com.au needs to like first of all they're, we they're, they're listening the so listen. we, we hello thanks for listening thanks for listening but i do not understand why you guys ever feel compelled to take anything that we say on this podcast and turn them into clickbait it's 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 a fascinating thing that i've learned about them and so i just absurd. feel i feel like um pink you know, I feel like I am people in America have some vague sense of, I, of who I am. But like in Australia, I am iconic and a showstopper, apparently, in That's a way. That's a problem. <laughs> you, you, you made a wrong turn somewhere, Australia. Yeah, Australia, you are very much <laughs> upside down in, in a very stranger <laughs> thing sense of the word. 
so yeah, yeah. So these, so so my list is there on Twitter. But we always sort of go over it, and I think the easiest way to do it, I guess, Courtney, I guess before before we go into our list, and we can do this as we go along too. But I think we should sort of set out the definition for this list. Mm. So the definition for this list, using your original words, and I modified it a little bit, but your original tweet was like most important women. And I changed it to most important players because there are women who were like did things in administrative capacities or as sure. media. Like you could have a list that included Gladys Heldman, who was a player technically back in the early days, but made a big impact as an organizer of the Virginia Slims tour. And we had our daughter Julie Heldman on the show a few months ago. Uh, if you're curious about that, and and she would get into like a top ten sort of like women who made women's tennis what it is today importance, but she didn't do it on court really same with like mary carrillo who i think you could argue is one of the 10 most influential people to have been a wta Could player. and would yeah right but her actual playing days are not really where she made her impact and there's other women like ann worcester who i don't think was ever was never on tour who also is a woman in the sport who's done big things so you know that's the sort of first caveat we were talking about women and mostly during their playing days pretty much and the other question that I have as well is, especially when we start getting into the definitional things, is are when we say important or impactful or whatever term of art people use, I mean, I think that people generally understand what we're saying, which is, well, although, you know what, let's not take that as an assumption. Mm-hmm. I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, not. first, first of all, it, do we take into account whether are, are we only taking into account positive impact? No. Okay, so negative impact counts as well. Fully no. Fully no, yeah. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Um, And then the other question that I had was whether or not, well, maybe that's it. I mean, that was one of the questions I had. I mean, that was, was one that I, that I answered to somebody on Twitter uh, in relation to one of my picks. Again, that was sort of like, important does not mean impressive. Important does not right. mean, you know, all for good. Like, it doesn't, it, those are not the same things. It doesn't mean... Um, you know, like pop inspiring per se. Like those is are it... those are different. Those are different worthwhile conversations. I think it can mean influential. I think influential is a fair uh, synonym for this discussion. Like how much they yeah. change things. Impactful, influential, important. I kind of read those all as kind of the same in this context. Uh, if you want yeah, lots I guess... of I words. Yeah. No. I, I like I like influential. I think when I was thinking about this at the time in the context of Lena, um, I guess the way that I was approaching it was the the 10 women players, because mm-hmm. I too was kind of taking it from a player perspective. I hadn't thought about the off-court side, but right. um, the 10 players who basically put women's tennis on the axis that it sits at today. Right. I think, I think these are women who I think it's important, a different way to phrase it, and it just sort of sounds like a book pitch or something, but like these are like <laughs> the 10 women that you should know to like understand where women's tennis has come from and where it is and like where it's going. Like these okay, are women yeah. who have sort of set that path in a meaningful way. And Effectively that I, a book of 10 chapters. Right. And it's sort of one of those, like, you know, there's those books that are like objects that shape the world or whatever, you know, sort of yeah. like that. Like it's sort of like a listy, you know, it's a list it's, it's clickable and whatever and, and snacky, but also hopefully, instructive and educational and again these are not our lists are not definitive but i did put you know some thought into mine and i feel like i know this topic decently well and 
have thought about these sort of things in the sort of arc of women's tennis before. So, um, and yeah, and it's not, and it's, it, again, and this is something that will come up when we talk about who did not make the list, but I can tell you like off the top of my head, I think three of the top of the four women who've won the most singles grand slam titles of all time are not on my top 10. Like, it's not about that. It's not about, I mean, some people might think important equals like winningest. And to me, that's a word that it very much is not. Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's where the subjectivity comes into comes yeah, totally. into it, right? Because I definitely saw that a lot. Um, and obviously, Ben and I have been texting about this throughout the week, uh, just back and forth as just kind of debating picks back and forth. Yeah, like one of the things that became very clear to me as I saw a lot of the responses kind of roll in into our mentions and into our emails and things like that once we put out the request is that I personally definitely don't heavily I don't heavily weight like stats I, I or just like on court achievement obviously the achievement is goes hand in hand into that person's influence sometimes mm-hmm. right like I mean we yeah. right because winners generally tend to influence things more than losers um and if you win a lot then probably you have more chips you know in your stack but yeah you know obviously this will come up in one of the controversial picks or non-picks that I think will come the main up anyway. one, the, the main sort of who I include and who I did not include that dominated my mentions. And I will say for people following along on their own Twitter apps, <laughs> um, I did like make one switch from my initial list that's on there, which I put in response to my thing. Um, yeah. After after previously saying like, yeah, there's one person on here who I like am not really sold on at all. And then eventually formally uh, asking her to sashay away in, 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 in current <laughs> parlance. Let's start with, I guess, let's just get into this. The ones that we agreed on. So you you had your Rushmore of five, your extra Rushmore, your more Rushmore of five of five women. And those, I think, and they're not, I think they're not always, they weren't necessarily, especially the last more recent two, were not always the consensus picks, but sure. they are the ones we agree on. So, Which is weird. Yeah, um, I guess so. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, I guess, like, why don't, do you want to just start and just say what, so just in case people didn't read your Twitter, mm-hmm. what well, your list of 10 is, or do you want to do that later? Or do you want to go what, one what, by what, one? Well, all five of yours are on my list of 10. So why don't we just go through those first five and okay. talk about why and sort of do our, like, courtroom style stipulations. Like, these are the facts we agree on. And you don't have a formal list of 10 of your own. I no, I, my, like, I was, Ben's is far more concrete. Um, mine is less so just simply because... I didn't want to be put in a situation where I like was like, these are my 10 and I've thought about, I just, it's still very fluid to me in a lot of ways. I'm still kind of like working the Rubik's cube out in my head Mm -hmm. and just kind of thinking about different things. So I think I definitely have like a small number or, you know, a good chunk of people where I'm like, yeah, but otherwise I see a lot of the arguments to and for and against Um, probably a group of like 10 to 15 players that could You could easily make an argument who should be in the top 10. And so mine is a very fluid list. Like yeah. I, you know, no, as, like, hot, as, yeah. as hot of a take as I'll have is, is my five, which honestly, three of them are not hot takes at all. And I guess yeah. the other two might be. But the other yeah. two are interesting that you put those two. Once you think of yours as a top five, that like there's one in particular in terms of who you picked over her sister that people could debate, <laughs> you know, how dare you. But I just really think Ursula Rudvonska is great. <laughs> Oh, and I thought I was, I was personally talking about Mary Osaka, but anyway, so be it. Um, <laughs> Although, same as these, but continue. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and, and, and I will say this to people too, like, it's easy, and this is something I got frustrated on and why I'm glad to have the space to 
this episode just refer people to for any and all future mentions brouhaha's and over this um like it's a it, when you do it like it's easy to look at my list or any list and be like how could you leave out this person like okay put them in your list and take one of mine out or more you know like the part the challenge of this is having it be limited if you just want to list women who you think are worthwhile you know to talk about in tennis and worth and worthy of praise or something that's easy but sort of making i would it, direct you to floor. the international tennis hall of fame yeah like you know i and mean it's a constant struggle for them people talk about is the bar too high is it too low da, da, da. but 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 i debate. just think but i totally agree with you i mean at the end of the day you know this is an uh, in many ways an artificial exercise but because we put very artificial parameters on it right we say there's just a list of 10 so if one goes in you got to pull one out um, and secondly, that, you know, as I was saying to Ben before we got onto the, the pod, like, I like this sort of question in the same way that I sometimes enjoy the goat question, only be- not because it, it yields a product that is finite and definitive and everybody can agree on and whatever, but it's just kind of more a discussion document. Yeah, it's, totally. it's, it's a thought exercise and more than anything, I think that when you, Especially, you know, if you're in Mason, Ohio during the Cincinnati Open and you come with us to Bricks and we open this discussion up and there's 12 people surrounding, you know, sitting around a table. Yeah. Very likely you'll get to know somebody's kind of point of view or even their personality off of how they answer this because totally. because it's going to reflect what you value. Um, and that is where I think it's really, really interesting, almost like a psych experiment. Like, oh, right. Okay. So you don't give a shit about this. No, I don't. Got you. Okay. That's where, you know, we're two, we're two different sides of the same coin or why we're never going to agree or, you know what I mean? And so it's not really about coming up with the definitive list. I, I, that's like a second, a, a tertiary um, priority yeah. in this discussion to me it's just more kind of like it was interesting to kind of think through it and just realize oh wow I apparently without me knowing this like value x y and z more than a b and c yeah no it's, it's interesting that and, was interesting and, it, and that's something that in my list I was sort of happy with in my list is that like yeah like there is in my again in this one controversial pick which we keep alluding to <laughs> and we'll get to get to her uh in due course later in the show but, like, for me, like, I like that pick from me because, to me, it, like, reflects a certain, like, cynicism and, like, real-world calculation of what goes into the sport that is what I think is important about the sport or what I think actually winds up mattering in the sport more yeah, than other and, people and, would. And it comes through, like, when you and I discuss it a lot, like, I, Ben knows this, like, I put a big emphasis on the financials. Mm-hmm. I put a big emphasis on the business side of tennis when I kind of try to evaluate these things yeah and that's where i think it's a little bit sometimes different right because maybe because of the job that i have or the insight that i have mm-hmm. or things like that that certain things just in the sausage factory um, yeah right you know like and so you get a little bit more of that whereas from a fan perspective from the outside looking in like it's a completely different you know like you don't i mean there are going to be people who like don't give a crap whether or not you know, there are eight tournaments in China now compared to what it was 15 years ago. Like, right. right? Whereas I'm kind of like, I have a paycheck because there are eight <laughs> tournaments in China. When yeah. I look at Lee Na, I'm like, dude, <laughs> like, you know, thank you yeah. <laughs> for winning a slam. Cause I don't know, basically open things up yeah. for more job opportunities and things like that. And 
So it's, yeah, like, I think that everybody's individual list is going to absolutely reflect not only that, but geographical yep. things of where you're from and what what matters to you, obviously, and how it's impacted yep. you, age, demographic, yep. race, all of that. When Both, you, you know. like, what era you entered the sport in, I think is very instructive um, yeah. in terms of yeah. who was there. And it's it's almost impossible to not think that who was a big deal when you were entering the sport is who's a big deal in the sport longer term. Um, and that goes to probably to my, again, controversial pick and also just others like that was what the climate of the sport was. And that's how I came to understand women's tennis through the lens of that person. Right. And uh, yeah, so that can and be, that's why that everybody just needs to calm down. It's, it's or don't not calm a... down. But, you know, keep, I, I don't I don't even need calm. I just want people to to be sort of talking in the same using the same language. You can be you can be you can be riled up about this and get emotional about it and feel passionately any direction of ways and we got some some nominations for people's top tens that are some of them i was sort of like okay yeah that's i know <laughs> but um but at the same time i can't uh you know i can't i can't deny anybody their truth so uh exactly yeah that's my point it's yeah. like you know it's like it's fun to discuss and it's you know maybe you open somebody else's eyes on certain things and the importance of certain things or Whatever, but it's just a discussion document, yeah. is my point. All right, so let's start this document with the five who are on your shortlist, who you we who are also all on my longer list of ten, which is still not very long, but all on the list. I guess we'll do them in sort of oh, from oldest to youngest order, chronologically. Sure. And the first one, the one who I think is on every single list that I saw, which is, I think, which is reassuring, is Billie Jean King who is sort of, I think if there has to be one, I think almost everyone would make it be her. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I it, did see, very true. I, I think that, I did see a couple people who did rank them and put other people ahead of Billie Jean, but Billie Jean is sort of in a league of her own. And I guess, Courtney, <laughs> you want to, and I feel like people who listen to this show probably already know why Billie Jean King is this person, but you want to give a nutshell, like write out her, you know, talk out what's on her, her Hall of Fame plaque size description of why she, why she mattered so much and why she's, uh, that woman yes well first of all i have to apologize because there's apparently some burning work going outside my window <laughs> at the moment so if you hear that that's what that is billy jean um, king really changed the landscape <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of power there. tools she's yeah. out there continuing continuing to change it um i mean billy jean king what can we say i mean she is in all ways the queen right i mean she is the 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 deity that exists um you know, within women's tennis, I think, um, especially obviously um, in the open era with the WTA and, and what she did in terms of, of um, helping to find or, you know, standing up and helping to found the WTA along with the original nine and mm-hmm. um, and just having the, the foresight and the courage and the conviction to, in a lot of ways, put her play. And this is why I don't really put accomplishments, all that like on court accomplishments, all that on like the ultimate, like, that's all that matters to me, set of factors, because Billy effectively had to kind of, like, play her career while also basically being the CEO of a startup. Right. And and to that end, you know, if that meant that, you know, she was arriving, she was leaving tournaments mid-tournament while she was still in the tournament to go do meetings up in New York and then flying back to Miami to go play her quarterfinal and, you know, things like that, stuff that's completely unheard of. But just... I think setting the tone, I think, for women's tennis that and it's a thing that I've always argued, which is that, you know, when you see somebody walking down the street, right, and they're wearing an ATP cap mm-hmm. or an ATP sweatshirt, my assumption is just like, oh, OK, so you like tennis. Cool. Yeah. Like 
you know, you're a tennis fan. That's awesome. Um, but if you were to see somebody walking down the street with some sort of WTA paraphernalia, which is rare, I know. Which you should sell more of, BT Which we would love to, trust me, but it's not as easy as people think. But, uh, but yeah, like if you see somebody who has like a WTA sweatshirt on, yeah. let's say, that's a far more political statement, right? Like it's not just like, oh, so you like, you know, Maria Sakari? Awesome. Like that, you know, it's, it's less about, oh, you like tennis. Like, oh, you like women's tennis. And there's code there. Oh, totally. And, and, that's, and I think one that of the Billy kind of helped set that. Billy in a lot fully of ways. set that, and Billy fully came at this political, so, socio-cultural moment of the women's movement of you know feminism, getting getting you know at the same time as sort of Gloria Steinem and all that, the marches and things are happening for equality and women's finding their voice in this period of general civil rights things happening in all sorts of different arenas. But the women's movement was a huge part of that, and I think Billy, to me, and I started thinking very briefly, and it sort of got bored about what the and we can talk about this later at the end or a different time of what the list of top 10 most important men would look like and how the criteria for that list would work in tennis and it's so different because like because like the women are playing on so many more different levels and have to do with so many different more cultural things it's so much more fraught it's so much more layered in all these ways i think make it a really interesting discussion the men, so the men's one is an interesting thought exercise, and if someone wants to come up with a men's list and reasons or even criteria, and maybe the men's list does look more like a who won the most list. I don't know. I mean, that's possible. But for the women, because of Billie Jean, Billie Jean was the example. And one of the we got. I'm going to try to read out some comments from people who submitted their lists with reasons, which we appreciated a lot um, to us. And one of the things that Nick PF gave as he put Billie Jean at number one on his ranked list, um, he said that she. Um, continues to hold the mantle for her long and full life. And that's completely true. Like Billie Jean it not is one of the clearer examples of somebody who continued to really bear the torch and like hold it high and proudly and intently throughout her whole career and like realized her symbolic pow- power and harnessed it in a way that I think is really important and still is synonymous with feminism, is still synonymous with equality in a way that I think is, and women's empowerment in a way that I think is reaches far beyond tennis. And obviously, Battle of the Sexes was a big part of that. That was a huge crossover outside of the tennis bubble circus that had a lot of meaning. It gets mentioned in almost any sort of women's history textbook you'd ever pick up in a way that almost no other sporting event would in men's or women's sports, like in terms of a sporting event that makes it into general history. Billie Jean King did that in a way that I think is really really huge and yeah. uh, marissa boyette another emailer says that she played college softball and didn't think it was a big deal because of her and she allowed people like me to grow up to believe growing up in sport was just a normal thing to do and i think right. that's true too i mean title nine was the same time as her i think is i think there can be debate about how much she caused title nine i think they get equated some too much sometimes but they were simultaneous um, are fairly contemporary events. They're definitely out. contemporaneous. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And, and you know, and this is maybe an instance where, as an American, we feel the impact of Billie Jean, like, all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, especially for myself, being a woman who p- grew up in, you know, the post-Battle of the Sexes era. And, yeah, there was just never a question that it was totally fine to play, to be a girl and play sports. And you should play sports because you can get a scholarship to college. And 
you know, with the collegiate system here and you can effectively, you know, save your parents like a hundred thousand dollars if you're just like good at hitting a ball, like, you know, little things like that. All of that is part of the legislation that, you know, that was enacted right around the same time as, as Billy and Billy, you know, battle the sexes and just being part of the women's movement and really pushing supported it for sure. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, there's obviously that aspect of it where if I were to guess like geographically, maybe outside of the States, maybe people understand it intellectually, but it doesn't hit you Mm. in the same way that, that maybe for, especially for women growing up in America, like Billy's like Billy. Um, second, but, but separate and apart from all that, because that's like the cheerleader side of it. But also when you look at like the, when we talk about what the WTA is and where women's tennis is now, where it was and where it, is going. Mm-hmm. I mean, all those decisions that were made, you know, by effectively Billy and, you know, the team, uh, you know, around her in the early days of the WTA of just like, you know, embracing fashion as part mm. of the sport. Embracing the show. Embracing yeah. the show of totally. it all. Uh, Virginia, I mean, Ben, no, we've had this discussion all the time because it's like my pet, like, oh, yeah. Theory. Which is that in a lot of the WTA is what the WTA is in terms of being the number one female professional sports league in the world by a fair far margin. Oh, yeah. There, there's really nobody second that's like nipping at our heels on that metric. And a lot of it is and as we I now see nowadays, like, you know, new sports leagues try to start up and they just can't um, or they struggle a lot because the political climate um, nowadays, it's, it actually makes you really hard. Like you think about it, right? Like so much of what women's tennis is, and this will follow, this is a discussion that will follow on when some of the other picks that <laughs> land on the list, specifically one of Ben's. Uh-huh. Um, but, but, you know, there is this glamor element to it, right? There yeah, is yeah. this very, and I, this is where, you know, impact, we can talk about good or bad and we can debate it. And it's something that I really struggle with a lot of like, you know, the the sexualization of the athletes the 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 you know all of that right you, it's hard to start a league nowadays and lean into that yeah no right I, like I, I think yeah totally so like and but for the WTA as spearheaded by Billy back in you know the the seventies and 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 eighties especially once Chrissy came along and everything like they 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 leaned into it they did it because not because culturally they wanted to, but because it, it, they had to, yeah. because that's how you were going to get sponsorships. And that's, you know, what the sponsors wanted and partnering with Virginia Slims. I mean, that's not something, I mean, that would never happen. You know, you, you can't do anything close to that nowadays, no. but that that's the lifeblood, right. Of the, of the tour in the early days. And so for Billy to kind of, what I really kind of am so, um, like intrigued by when it comes to Billy is like obviously having that very like the feminist angle pushed to the front a hundred percent like not questioned there but then also her willingness to though understand the business side of things and oh. to and to be courageous enough I mean people can debate whether it's courageous or not I don't know because sometimes people think oh selling out is not courageous like blah blah, blah should have been a rebel and like you know but like she made, she 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 leaned into it. She brought Ted Tingling in. She, you know, put sequins on the dress. Yeah. She, you know, all that sort of stuff. Like, and that is kind of if 
I don't know. I really yeah. do think that when you trace it back, like that's kind of that's so part of the WTA DNA, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it segues but, so cleanly. I keep yeah. waiting to segue into the number Sorry. two pick. No, 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 it's fine. But I, I think you're right. If we want to keep going with Billy, fine. I'm just like, I keep seeing all these segues to get to the second person on your Rushmore. And you mentioned mm -hmm. her already in Chris Everett. But like, I think it's really telling. And we can go back to Billy again. But I do, I want to get to Chris here because I think it's like a, such a great <laughs> off ramp to her. Like, or even like a smooth, easy lane change with no blinker needed. Like, that. Billie Jean thinks the most important person, she said, the most important person in women's tennis history is Chris Everett. Like, Billie points to Chris. Right. Because Chris was the person who was this package, which they could sell. She was the person who put butts in seats with this mix of, you know, being a, a beauty queen um, and, or not, I mean, not, not, maybe not beauty queens and overstated, but being someone who was attractive and could put women's tennis in that way. And she was also... This very, I think, I kind of think, like, not really precedented person who won respect from the male sports commentariat for both being pretty, but also they took her so seriously as an athlete. She yeah. was she was someone who was very feminine and incredibly athletically dominant in a way that never felt contradictory, in a way that I think is a sweet spot that women's tennis really thrived in and that other sports have not really hit that combo in quite the same way. And from um, Ido Roth, who's one of the people who mentioned her, Chris Everett on his list, said that she was America's tennis sweetheart during uh, the peak tennis years and thus really affected how the sport is perceived in this country. And I fully agree with that. And I think, talk about generational things. I think people who were not around for Chris Everett's playing career, which includes me, I was not alive for most of her career, like that is, they will talk, they will understand Chris Everett hugely right away in terms of what she meant just culturally as a symbol and as a face for tennis. And she was somebody who absolutely was the personification of that sort of non-threatening, not, you know, off-putting in any way that sometimes female athletes were branded as being, in terms of being overly masculine or whatever um, person. And she did that in a way that I think was just uh, sort of, like I, yeah, sort of like I said, the, the sweet spot combo of those two things and all those sort of things you were saying about what women's tennis was able to do in package and all those things that Billy being savvy and cynical understood, I think Chris ever embodied in a way that really helped the tour get off the ground. Well, I mean, yeah, Chrissy brought tennis out of the niche yeah. and into the mainstream. She mm -hmm. hosted a Saturday night live. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, it's, it's really, yeah. I mean, I think that for, for younger fans who, who didn't, yeah, grow up in the Chris, um, and I'm a bit older than Ben. And mm -hmm. I do remember like Chrissy was everywhere. Yeah. And, she was an absolutely a, a cultural icon and, and like, you know, a, a sponsor's dream. And then at the same time had the game. And that was really, you know, when you, when you think about, yeah, when we talk about, you know, that sweet spot of, of, and we can have a separate discussion podcast about whether or not it should be this way. Yeah, totally. Okay. And I get that, but and we want to get to the point where these things don't matter. And yes, a hundred percent. But in the eighties <laughs> and 70s, the seventies, yeah, early seventies, it, ma it, it mattered. And and for you know the largest sports market in the world mm -hmm. to have a star like that, to have like an icon in Billy, to kind of kick things up and, and start things off the ground, and then to be able to pass that torch onto Chrissy, which will lead to number three mm -hmm. on our on on Mount Rushmore. Um, but in terms of what elevated women's tennis and the WTA 
into what it is effectively, in my opinion, today it is today. Yeah. But, you know, like that's the bridge. And that's why these three women, um, I mean, next we're going to be talking about Martina Navratilova. Right. But those three women are like just the bedrock of women's tennis. Yeah. Like the, that's just that's the foundation. And without any of those three, you just don't have it. I think in my so. opinion, I, I think that Chrissy could have been Chrissy and it would have been amazing. But um, but the rivalry with Martina, the tennis that they produced and just the respect that they were that they 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 earned for for women swimming swinging a racket yeah from the non tennis people from you know big old burly like dudes who wanted to go watch the bears but then oh wait hold on the Lipton Classics going on yeah let's turn that on you know that's a different level yeah. and so that's why for me it's like these are the three pillars of the WTA and I say that specifically because I just I don't want to have a debate about about long lawn and moody and uh, we will like, later I mean, we I, should we can but as yeah. a, for me but but within what i'm saying yeah no in terms profe- of the, professional the, sport. the three yeah the, 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 the holy the trinity yeah of the professional era for women it's those three I, I i agree with that and i will say one thing we haven't mentioned on court i do think that chris is the first one of these three and probably the only the three honestly who you can talk about her actual tennis she played and how sort of instructive that was to what the game looks like today. I mean, Chris yes. was the first one to dominate with a baseline two-handed backhand game. And that's what, like, literally everybody does now. Like, there's almost no one-hand backhands on the women's game anymore. And Chris Everett was sort of the one who I think made that. And it was happening on the men's side, too, to a lesser extent. I mean, Jimmy Connors was there doing two-handed thing also, but the one-handers still kind of survived on the men's side. And you still see sets of pass with it and all these younger kids and we get really excited when there's a woman with a one-handed backhand now because it's a unicorn and part of the reason it's become such a recessive gene was because of the dominant gene of uh well gene was her sister but uh chris ever <laughs> and uh yeah i think that, well and also that's, ushering that's the in the, the teenage phenom yeah. on the on the wta tour mm-hmm. or in women's tennis right of, of of all of a sudden the tour looking towards towards teenagers to win and you know yeah. chrissy begets tracy you know but you know it, it just goes down the line there's florida, so much florida that, tennis i mean coming up i mean she's florida sort of, tennis she sort of yeah. moved the gravitational center of the sport to florida i think in a way where it stayed there and she was from fort lauderdale i think and and set, later on set up an academy which Gave rise to players like Naomi Osaka. I mean, so Madison there's like a Keys. lot. Yeah, there's a lot of people who can now. Uh, I think Andy Roddick was there too. There's some men who went through Everett's as well. I mean, like there's, uh, yeah, the legacy there is just tough. And people who, this is the one that I will like sort of, even though it is still all subjective and you can live whatever truth you want. People who like argued about Chrissy in my mentions, I was like, come on, like you just <laughs> get out of here. You, sorry, <laughs> you don't get it. You you don't you don't you kids don't get it. Yeah, so Navratilova is the next one, and I do think Navratilova. Is also is, was also on everybody's list, um, and it's interesting we kind of break her down in these things because she did have um, yeah she was Chris's rival and they sort of carried the sport the two of them for a very long time, and just like the amount of weeks that one or the other of them was number one over the course of like fourteen years is absurd. That's a rough number, but they were they were co queens of the tour for a very very long time and a very important time for men's women's tennis when it was at its popularity peak in the 70s and 80s um and she you know in terms of what she did on court was huge in terms of being super athletic and i guess off court in terms of the training and the amount of 
physicality she brought to it and really upping the stakes for women's tennis as a as an athletic pursuit and you can get we can get to this with uh with the williamses later in terms of how they raise the bar even further than that and how people finally kind of caught up or realized they had to do this to you know not sink in the sport um martina was the first one to do that and to bring this sort of professionalism and she was the first one to do basic things from what my understanding she was the first one to kind of even bring in like full-time coaches to the sport and just to do things to try to maximize her talent in a way that others weren't doing before her and it's it's tough to imagine what that is and then yeah everything then obviously those are the, those are the on-court basic things even if many people aren't serving and volleying now um we're playing one-handed backhands or you know playing doubles into their 40s like she did but all those encore things are incredibly important for the tone she set and the bar and how she raised it and then obviously there's everything she did off court and her cultural symbolism is also cannot be discounted for for i think and i would get i was going to say this with billy a little bit too and this goes to the importance being positive and negative i do think that the image of when billy was outed and when martina you know was also outed but it was a little bit more of a little less of a antagonistic way to happen with her, but it's still not really of her own choosing for either of them. I do think that also shaped the image of women's tennis, women's sports in a way that's important, use that word, in a way that is looked back on now as pioneering, but at the same time was a huge challenge for women's tennis, women's sports in the 1980s when these things were happening. And not to blame either of them for that, but I do think it was something that that sort of reaction to it and that um, homophobia, for lack of a better word, uh, is sort of instructive in looking at how women's tennis was seen for a lot of years. I guess so. But at the same time, I mean, wasn't the stigma always with women's sport? And it still exists to this day that if you oh, yeah. are, I mean, so just so that I could finish the thought yeah, yeah. so that we're yeah. not speaking in hidden code or whatever, yeah. but like, I would, I mean, it's always been my experience and especially as one who played like was three sport in high school and everything like that. Like that if you played sports, like, and you were a girl, then you're probably gay like that. And I feel like that still is the stigma oh. now with respect to sports. So I don't know. I mean, you tweeted that video about the rugby players in England today. I mean, yeah, like, where they say exactly. like, the first thing that people say is they assume that everybody on the England rugby women's team is a lesbian. And yeah. So that stigma predates Billie Jean and, and uh, Martina yeah, for so... sure. But I think they also were the first to be publicly out in a way that I think ah, sort of okay, confirmed it in a way that I don't think it had been before. Um, and they had to bear a lot of weight for that. And the sport also had for sure. sort of was trying to juggle that. Yeah. Shake that for lack of a better term. And in ways that are, um, I think we're a huge part of, uh, we're a huge challenge for the sport. It doesn't seem fair to say that now, especially with the general acceptance of gays and lesbians and marriage rights and all sorts of things. But back, not that long ago, back, you know, early nineties, this was considered a huge obstacle for the sport yeah i mean i i think that more less well i mean i don't know i haven't thought this into this thought entirely through but i'll let it rip anyway which is okay. i apologize to my boss in advance um <laughs> but um you can yell at me later no but I, I think this is right though that i i think that it was more about i mean i'm i'm su i'm such a business side person like it was more about like quote unquote shaking it for the business benefit of sponsorship i feel like less so about like cultural i could be wrong actually and those kind of go hand in hand right well no not necessarily i mean because 
generally, like, I mean, especially if you think about like the 80s and 90s, like the people who had the money are going to be running far more conservative than the culture. Like people might yeah. not have, maybe people would have still cared. I don't know. I, I think you're right. And I think this gets to <laughs> keep alluding to her, but to like, <laughs> there were some very thin years financially for women's tennis in the early mid nineties. And that was after Virginia Slims left. And um, after Virginia Slims was sort of, you know, they part of, that was considered no longer feasible to be partnered with them. The sport had to sort of, until it got rebranded and reimagined by this other person, uh, whose name I'm just refusing to say until it becomes time. <laughs> so just to keep, you know, they can use a lot of brackets on news.com.au for these comments. Um, is You're forcing those guys to listen all the way through. I really am. Um, hello. I, I feel like I should note their names, but I don't. I do think that, like, that was sort of a, a shift that, that she represented <laughs> later on that was, like, that put women's tennis back into the far greener pastures. Yeah, but I mean, getting back to Martina, though, I think yeah. one of the the, the bit one of the big things that I think about that um, in terms of her impact and why she helped put tennis on its axis is in a lot of ways opening up tennis to Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. and that's and even I mean maybe Europe generally, but I think in particular, I mean because you know when you talk to a lot of the the younger players from Eastern Europe, a lot of them. Will or the Balkans or wherever, like a lot of them will mention they won't. They're too young to mention Navratilova as being somebody they necessarily look up to. Although obviously, like Petra, um, was yeah. fully aware of the Martina Navratilova. The Czechs, knew, yeah. the Czechs knew, but outside of that, but you know, when you you kind of, um, yeah, I mean, like the two people that people kind of point to are Navratilova and Celis. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of like Serbians, um, like Anna and. JJ and a lot of like um they yeah. would they 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 talk about Monica Sellis was a Yugoslav one yeah for sure yeah exactly but like but I'm not saying that these two overlap but I'm saying that those are the two uh, that I think a lot of players always ended up citing who are from those regions as being like oh that person played and so yeah. like that's why you know I picked up a racket I, you know that sort of thing yeah. and i think the um, mystery woman still is also very much in that conversation too yes but, i uh, know i i avoided saying and also another person from another country but <laughs> a little further east a little bigger honestly i feel like we're making we're making a really good argument that she should be number one on our list so someone tweeted that at me and i like reached, i did I, see I quote, that yeah i quote tweeted and i was like i don't hate this and we'll get to her but like honestly like that's what i was like I was and when I did my substitution. It's so absurd, but yeah. And when I did my substitution, <laughs> I like I kicked out. Um, we'll get I, we'll get to Steffi Graf. I kicked out Steffi Graf, and I was like, and y'all are coming for this one, and I am not <laughs> having it, and I will happily take, go to bat for her. But let's continue with your Matt Rushmore in the meantime, and skip ahead quite a few years um, to a contemporary of this woman uh, at the beginning of their careers. Anyway, um, both made their breakthroughs in 1997. Courtney, your fourth person on Mount Rushmore is interesting. It wasn't someone who was in my initial 10, actually, but I put her in there. Uh, and this mentioned substitution is Venus Williams. Yes, Venus Williams uh, would be. And it's 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 not an easy pick because I know that, you know, having the whole debate between whether or not you include Venus or Serena, Venus and Serena. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's a whole and I get that discussion and I don't think that it's an it's a no win situation. I think that I think it's tough. And I do think just we can talk about that just in terms of defining the terms right off the bat, I think. Like, I think it makes a lot of coherent sense to have them as a package item because they are sisters. 
they are, you know, they did spend so much time together on court as a doubles team. They were coached by the same people, went up through the exact same pipeline, had a lot of the same experiences, obviously spaced out by a few years because Venus did break on the tour first and it's older and went through a lot of stuff first. And especially in the, and their careers in this decade look very different from each other's um, and their sort of statuses and their profiles and their approach to things are very different now. But so much of what they did, so much of when you're def- describing why one is important, I think it applies almost word for word to the other one in a way that I think I don't want to I don't want to feel like we're minimizing them by making them like the same entry on the list. I'm conscious of that. Being like, oh, they each only get half a spot, but at the same time, like they did so much together and in tandem, and they would yeah, say that too. I mean, they would certainly, yeah, the other. no, I mean, th- it's hard because the Venn diagram, the Venus and Serena Venn diagram, has a ton of overlap, but I also feel like the parts that maybe overlap less are also so important for each of them mm-hmm. as individuals. I, I just, I really have no idea how to parse out that ball of yarn, and so. I mean, that, so that's just the broader discussion. But the reason that I personally put Venus on it, and again, this goes back to what we were saying before about this kind of reflecting what you care about and what, um, and. What you care about is older sisters, let's be clear. That's your bias here. <laughs> so basically, my entire life has been modeled after League of Their Own. As, as I said to you, yeah. Like your entire you life did... is, that, is that theory about the League of Their Own ending, where she dropped the ball on purpose. We know, we she know. She dropped the ball on purpose. Um,. But uh, to me, uh, just the fact that that Venus was first, that she was the one that turned pro first, that she had to deal with a lot. And that this isn't to say that Serena, I just, this is going to be so complicated to discuss because it doesn't matter. No matter what I say, I'm just going to get hit from either side. But that to me, it just, I, I always have a heart for Venus because she was the, she was the older one. She was the one that turned pro first she was the one that kind of had to deal with a lot of with really the brunt. She was into the breach first. Can I say what it says in my notes here? Like she's the one who got hit in the shoulder by Irina Spurlea and had to like <laughs> stand tall after that. Seriously though, she's the right. one who like who had to take the first punches from tennis and I and I and and you know be the one who got the first brunt of everything. And she also threw the first punches, not as hard as Serena. I mean, Venus never talked about formal education in the same way Serena did. <laughs> Serena so Serena came in as kind of like the one who, you know, Richard would say was the meaner one. But but Venus had to hold it together first and had to sort of introduce I mean, the world, the tennis world, to the concept of the Williams family. On and court. I just I just, I guess on, in a lot of ways, like my pick of Venus and why like I have a heart for her is a lot of it is just pure projection, mm-hmm. going back to the whole discussion of, of a league of their own. But yeah. like, I just remember growing up and I have a sister who's younger and, you know, and there's just the both of us, but growing up, my father and my mother, all every, the pressure on me to be an example was like was like um character defining Mm -hmm. for me like you know every decision everything had to be constantly looking in the rearview mirror to make sure that it you know that like it was right that you know i wasn't making a misstep and that's an it's a weird pressure to have to go through um and so i kind of project that onto venus a little bit like she's the one that has to hold her head up high she cannot fail in the slightest because if she fails, they all will fail because everybody will just think that like you and your sister are failures and black sheep and like, you know, da, 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 um, that you don't belong, you know? And so th- there was just, there's just this pressure and she just handled it in my opinion so well. So like, um, and, and 
And she's not the on one who's ever like let loose on court in terms of anger the way that Serena has in her career. Right. And and yeah. so there there's there's a lot of that that I just have always really respected with Venus. It brings up the secondary thing, which I know, Ben, you have thoughts about, mm-hmm. which is obviously equal prize money. Um, and for me, like, you know, just for her to have the courage that she had yeah. to write the letter, to go in and, and, and speak to 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 the folks at Wimbledon yeah. um, and to really, you know, tr- at least, you know, I know that. Well, I'll, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. You can ex- you can so, say your yeah. part on it. But yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I compl- that was the thing that people brought up a lot when I left Venus off my initial list was giving her credit for having equal prize money. Um, which people just sort of left there. But I think specifically what they meant is Wimbledon, uh, where she, like you mentioned, wrote a, a letter that was printed in the Times of London and um, and went to a meeting of the Wimbledon board and is, you know, in a Ava DuVernay 30 for 30 documentary. Yeah, Ava is, DuVernay. Yeah, is, is cra- credited with um, being the one called Venus Versus, which is a good watch and you guys should all watch it. Um, and it's, I think it's short. I think it's only like half an hour, an hour long. It's 30 but, minutes and it's yeah. great. It's the best, I think, Williams doc I've seen. And it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's definitely different than the other ones, and it's more journalistic in a way that I think is useful. Um, although the first one, Venus and Serena one, I, I like too in some parts. Um, but anyway, it's a tangent. Um, I do think Venus should get a lot of credit for being the one who carried the torch in that moment and for being the sort of echo of Billie Jean King among the, you know, this millennium generation. I do also somewhat think that it can be overblown in the way it's talked about with her. And I do think that equal prize money was probably coming with or without Venus pretty soon. Because, I mean, the difference at that point was like 95. The, the women were getting like 95 cents on the dollar to the men. It was like this tiny, tiny margin. And I don't know that it wouldn't have happened without Venus Williams. And so I, that's not to say that she doesn't deserve credit, but I do think it's just putting it in some context that the battle was almost all won before Venus kind of got it over the line in a way that's very different from how Billie Jean King should be talked about when Billie Jean King got equal prize money, was not single-handedly, but was part of the movement for it at the U.S. Open and part of getting women's tennis off the ground when the pay gaps were much, much bigger. Venus was sort of a more isolated, smaller, still hugely symbolically important thing to get equal prize money at all for Grand Slams. And that is has stayed, and I can't imagine it will ever go anywhere at this point. And it did take a long time yeah. to get there. But I do think that, yeah, that's, that's sort of, you know... That's sort of a, I don't know if it's a hot take, but I do think that Venus, I do think it was coming with or without Venus there. Yeah, but I I, I understand intellectually that argument. I, I think that, though, with Venus, you know, no one was, no no other players stepped up, really, as, right. you know, to step into the, you know, yeah. to, to stand up and say, I'm going to go and g- give me the ball, coach, we're at one and goal, and we just got to go one yard, but I'm going to punch it in. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like and she went to the meeting like the night before, or the day before the women's final. Yeah. In and, and, I and I think that, you know, to, I, I think, yeah, you and I have discussed this before, just in terms of like the torch, that kind of political torch being passed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, 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 it really was passed from Billy to Venus. Yeah. Right. Like it, it the whole up and up until then, like, like Chrissy and Martina played. And it's not to say they didn't have like other, you know, obviously with Martina being a, the cultural figure that she was getting outed and all these sorts of things where, but she, she didn't have quite the voice then that she obviously has now. Um, and Chrissy, I mean, they elevated the sport and kind of took on Billy's vision by like being I would, rivals I would and, and push back moving. on that a little bit. 
Okay, fine. I think, I think they're did. I think they did more on that front than you're giving them credit for necessarily. I mean, I think they were both like WTA player back when WTA meant like the players' union. They were both presidents. Oh that. yeah, for sure. They both, you know, and Pam Shriver also in that group too. Yes, it, uh, it was yes. younger than either of them, but was also coming up and was also in there. And I think that was something that with the Billie Jean set a good standard of that being the best player in the world, which Billie Jean was the number one. Let's not act like she was a scrub. Um, <laughs> right. She. Um, I think she set a standard of the number ones carrying the torch for the cause in a way that really lasted through uh, all the way through Martina and Chrissy's careers. And I think Chrissy even came back to be a president of WTA like after her playing days for a bit. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent all those things. But like But Venus was it in but the two thousand in term but in terms of the spirit of Billy yeah. of you know, this is a black woman deciding to take up this torch for equal yeah. prize money mm -hmm. to walk into the all England club. Yeah. The whitest place in the world. And, and say what she said and, and, and to take that, you know, stand in that is, I mean, there is a, a courage there, even if, even if they're a yard away, yeah. even if I take, no, you I know, but to, to, to throw your hat in the ring there and to do that, I think that is more in the spirit of Billy no, you're right. is my point. You're right. And I then think and I probably... the behind the scenes machinations of building a tour. I a hundred percent agree that like Chrissy and Martina and everybody was, was doing that. Um, but, but to really stick, you know, stick your neck out there um, and put yourself intentionally in an awkward situation to, to, to kind of for the benefit of all. Um, I, I give, I give Venus a lot of credit for yeah, that. I, I think you're right. And I think I, I'm, just kind of want to revise my tone on a little bit. Just like I, I agree that even though it was a yard away at this point, <laughs> All England Club was absolutely making a very fierce goal line stand here to like make sure the, the women did not get in the, the Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was like it was a long time, and it, you're right. It was like it would not have getting to 100% one to one equality is one of the most important symbolic and meaningful you know bank account things that women's tennis has ever done. Uh, getting that at the Grand Slams, and that would not have been completed without people. People who are in the room say that would not have been completed without Venus, and so Venus deserves credit for that too. And and just also on a totally separate note, on the same way I talked about Chrissy and Martina, like Venus on court, like the way that she and Serena, but Venus first. Although Serena really was pretty quickly behind her. The more I look at it, like the gap was tiny between how long Venus was on the tour as a force without Serena it was not very long. Um, Venus, uh, in terms of the athleticism she brought and the speed and power she brought that people had to contend with and the kind of level you had to be on. And I think that sort of the way it's described is that, you know, the Williamses, the way it was seen then anyways, the Williamses drummed like Martina Hingis out of the sport by her not being the kind of athlete that they were and not being the kind of unrelenting player. And obviously Martina won five Grand Slams and beat the Williams as many times, but um, was uh, they raised the bar in a way that I don't think anybody... It took a few years for the tour to catch up to. And I think Justine Ennen was the first one who kind of matched them physically, even though she was much smaller, um, but kind of got that sort of like work ethic dedication that they had to make the sport even more professional and to make it, you know, to make the women the sort of... The women of the modern game the sort of completely world-class athletes that they are now which yeah, wasn't and, always the case in women's, in women's tennis right and I, and I think that that's again like you know once you you trace all of the the, the points i mean that's kind of taking the torch from martina yeah. right 
like, I mean, Martina professionalized the physicality mm-hmm. of side of, of the women's game, um, I think. And, um, and yeah, I mean, and Richard was see that. on that the whole way too. Richard was always having yeah. Venus and Serena in the, you know, in workout rooms, you know, from a young age, getting them not taking anything for granted and just maximizing for sure. In a way yeah. that they and did, that, that people didn't. And that's the that. professional side that people don't give them enough credit credit for, in totally. my opinion, right? They're, like, I mean, they're friggin' pros through and through. They're total pros. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so that's that's my Venus sign. I mean, and that's I was just thinking this, and I'm just gonna throw it out there. Okay. Because I haven't thought it all the way through. Because I have to go through and audit male players, I guess. But like, does is like Novak? I don't know. Is this a crazy? You can cut this out if this is stupid. <laughs> but is Novak the only? He's like the only player that I can think of that regularly hits the open stance backhand the way that the Williamses do. Oh, I would have to think about that. Um, yeah, his is the most Williams-ish backhand of the right? guys. I think so. So there you go. And Venus also created Novak. <laughs> so there you go. Number four on Rushmore, baby. Not this, They're both both flirted with veganism at various times in their careers. You know, the, the <laughs> Venus and Novak parallels run, I'm not going to say deep, but they're, you know, they're there to be had if you want. Um, and I, I will say on Venus, I think part of also my thinking and trying to contextualize her uh, her impact on the equal prize money front is purely bias for me and in some um, willing to admit like latent frustration that she's gone so silent lately you know like i feel like venus carried the torch from billy for sure in that era 10 years ago and has since kind of put it down and let serena and let other people take it and it's not been the vocal art you know articulation of this cause um in a way that she was and so i hope that before her playing days are done that she decides to do that again because i think that's the voice that is needed and rings really loud and clear um when she chooses to use it and has chosen to use it before um so i hope that i hope that selfishly i hope she and just for the sake of women's tennis i hope that she gets back on that megaphone again oh one one thought from a, a listener who said marissa boyette also ranked her uh, top 10 and she had venus at number one she said venus has been the undercurrent of the past few generations defining what we know women's tennis to be today she stood on the shoulders of BJK and the original nine, and now has let Serena stand on her shoulders, which I think is a good way to put that. Uh, I like their that. Sort of thing. She's, Marissa says, my admiration for her knows no bounds, and I may be dramatic, but I stand by this. Mm-hmm. Um, so good good words for Venus. Oh, there. I mean, I, you know. But letting Serena stand on her shoulders is really well put, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have made that argument in the past when I've had a few drinks in me um, <laughs> at bars. That that yeah that that there's there's a very strong part of me that 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 doesn't know if there's a Serena without a Venus. I think that's right. And and in that way, now I mean we can I guess we can argue would there be a Venus without Serena? I mean these were practice partners obviously mm-hmm. for for years of their lives. But um, again, that's why like kind of I don't know consciously or subconsciously that's just why I kind of like when I think of impact and influence, if I had to pick only one of them, like right? I mean I guess that's a caveat, but. Um, that's why I kind of, I kind of lean towards Venus a little bit. I lean the other way, but we'll get to Serena, uh, once we finish as as an individual, once we finish your, uh, Mount Rushmore and your fifth lady on Mount Rushmore is, uh, the one and only person who started this whole (laughs) thing for us. Thanks, Lena. Um, the Mount Rushmore of this conversation, the Mount Rushmore of this conversation is, uh, Lena and, she, Courtney, I guess, what is your, um, of the women we've talked about so far, 
um, she has the thinnest on court resume. You know, she was not a number one. Sure. She was not. She only only won two Grand Slams. Um, but what made what makes for you? And I know obviously I know the answer to these questions. But what makes Lena such a um, a first ballot Mount Rushmore given for you? I mean, to me, if if you are someone that opens up a one billion people <laughs> to to the sport. I think that's pretty significant. I mean, it, all that you have to do is is honestly just just walk around the grounds at some of the biggest the biggest events. Um, you know, we're just coming back obviously from the Australian Open, and and there was a, an entire stadium uh, named after a Chinese company. 15, what was it? Fifteen seventy three arena. Fifteen seventy three arena. Yeah, a Chinese Baiju company, which is a and not even like their real name, like the year they were founded. Weird. And uh, yeah, it's just the name of it, but. Um, you know, and there's 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 Chinese characters on signage. There's, um, yep. you know, obviously when you go and I always say this to people who are skeptics. I think I've said it on the the podcast before. Whenever we go through the the China swing specifically, is when people are like, oh, why are these tournaments here? Blah, blah. I don't know. Like maybe take one photo from one of the press conferences, look up the companies that are on the the signage behind the player as they're speaking, and add up their cap value. And that's why at the end of the day, like, you know, she her success at the French Open and then obviously again at the Australian Open, but just kind of doubling down and, and proving just and obviously making number two. I mean, she was a great player for those like five yeah. or six years and number two um, behind Serena. Yeah, right. And exactly. Yeah. Um, but um, but just her influence and just kind of opening up that market, you know, how, how you know, Academy is now being founded out there, the jobs that have opened up down there in China um, as, you know, not just because she won, but how she won, right? I mean, mm-hmm. she's the one that, uh, along with Peng Shui and Zhang Jie and um, all them kind of broke away from a little bit from the, the Chinese um, the Chinese system, the federation system, which required everything to be kind of like you train in China, you have a Chinese coach, uh, you don't travel that much outside of China. Um, and really your goal back then from uh, as a Chinese player was just to win the China games just to win a gold medal for your province and mm-hmm. for your team. And if you did that, you were set for life, like in China, like the government will take care of you, get your family, a new house, like, you know, better living situation, wages, et cetera, et cetera. And Lena was, was the one that was like, I want more than that. I don't want to just be Chinese number one. And I don't want to just be a gold medalist at, at the China games or the Asian games. Mm-hmm. And, um, so she went, got, you know, trained outside, lived in Germany, you know, got Western coaches to help yeah. get her better. And now that is the model that you see in, well, not anymore, but Wang Shang, yeah, I was say, uh, yeah. who, who just split with Peter McNamara. But that was uh, almost six years or something or no, almost four years. I think they were together um, and, you know, got her into the top 20. You see that with nearly every young Chinese player has a Western coach. Yeah. Um, and that has just kind of really changed and revitalized at least the women. I mean, the men yeah. are lagging behind and, and whatever. And the, and the, and the, you mentioned this early in the beginning of the show, but like the, the tour has reacted to Lena, even I think before she, maybe even a little bit before she went to grand slams, but like reacted to China in a way that's a seismic business shift in a way that I don't think any of the other women geographically ever represented. I mean, the tour championships were very briefly in Germany a little bit after Steffi Graf's peak, but now there's only two tournaments in Germany and it wasn't a big footprint for the sport. They're on a professional level. 
for very long. It's still a very popular recreational sport in Germany. That's one argument I got a lot for Steffi Graf being on the list. Um, and she's not on my list, so I haven't mentioned that yet. But um, but Lina is somebody who you look in the junior draws of these tournaments and you see all the Chinese names now. And yeah. that is cl so clearly an echo, a sort of like an aftershock of the of the seismic boom that was Lina. And that she, you know, she the future of women's tennis, at least WTA seems to think, is largely Chinese. I mean, the 10-year deal, 10 years, right, for Shenzhen? 10 years, baby. To host the the WTA finals at the end of the year, the year-end championships. That's a huge, huge commitment to a country that, as of, you know, 20 years ago, was barely on the tennis map whatsoever. And right. so, and that's, and that's Lina's doing. And, and the market does seem to be there. Obviously, the stadiums aren't always full, and people point to that. But the business is there, and... The WTA is banking that the, you know, stands will fill up at some points where they're building these huge stadiums, um, and yeah, I, I think that. And I, other thing is the sort of, I think symbolically, culturally, what she was too, and her personality. I think I can argue for her having sort of a Billie Jean King type impact in some ways within Chinese culture in terms of yeah. what she stood for for independent women there. And um, and one of the people we wrote in about Lina who mentioned her, uh, listener Janice Derringer, who said that. Lena opened tennis in China, broke out from the Chinese system, hiring independent coaching, playing her own schedule, like you said. And then she also added, I don't know if she meant it as a joke, but she said she should be on this list for the interviews alone. And I do think that's like important. I think like honestly, like as as ridiculous as it sounds, like when Lena told jokes on Rod Laver Arena after making the Australian Open final, like I don't know that people thought they'd ever heard a joke from a Chinese person before. But, and it, but, like, I, yeah, it was that's... baffling the reactions to it. It was like, really, okay, like people reacted that way. Like, I didn't know Chinese yeah. people could be funny. It's like, geez. literally, that was a thing that was said in Lena's press conference yes. uh, in Australian Open, and I remember like my jaw dropping. And, um, but that's you know when you again when you start talking about opening up the world, um, not just opening up, you know, I like. Some of, uh, you know, some friends who are Chinese journalists who mm -hmm. say, you know, if not for Li Na, I never would have seen the world yeah. like Li Na because of her success. Like I got to go around the world and cover her and I go to all these different countries. But in the same way, like Li Na opened up China to the West. Yeah. Right. Like like we, like I go and spend a, a month in China. I now I, I now use the word Wuhan in conversation. Now. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, and I never heard of it before. You know, yeah. And honestly, if you think about it. Like Lee Na's on court interviews slash like acceptance speeches at the mm -hmm. Australian Open pretty much invented the on court interview and acceptance speech game. Like before that, what is the like on court interview you remember distinctly? Like in the new era, because yeah, the on court interviews are kind of a new new deal anyway. Yeah. You Which know a what I mean? Of like that's... players like wish they'd had. I've heard them say that. Yeah, I could yeah. I could see that, but like, like yeah, Martina I mean, like, Navratilova's definitely said that that she wished she got the short personality. People just watched her play in the way that Lena, I think it's fair to say, invented. Yeah, I mean, I I, I can't remember even before then a Serena on court interview or acceptance speech or a Maria one or um that were particularly notable. But I felt like Lena made that five minutes after the match like must-see viewing at slams that did that it was unpredictable and too. Yeah. it was unpredictable and and now like kind of people are expected to like the minute that they're done 
killing themselves in a three-hour match like to put on a show oh yeah they're like they're like and roll, rest, they're which like, i think is so unfair they're like rolling clips of sitsapas's youtube channel is out there and it's they like like packages go, it's, like what is ha- yeah i agree and it's and gone she, too far and, but, but i think that she yeah. invented it yeah i think that's fair i think that's simple she but fair i think she she definitely changed the game she definitely upped the game for sure in terms of showing yeah showing your personality in that in that medium and, i totally agree yeah, and then going back to the other point that um, that you made that I just wanted to follow up on because a lot of people were saying, well, if you have Lina, um, then you have to have Sonia Mirza, or if you have mm-hmm. Lina, then you have to have X Y Z player from this large country, even like Sharapova or whoever, like you know, from massive countries. And it's like yes and no, actually, because again, it's about the follow-on effect, not just in the clubs and not just in how tennis was viewed, but when you look at the actual money that Li Na has basically created for tennis in China, the number of tournaments that now exist there. I mean, there is no WTA tournament in, 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 in India, despite yeah. Sonia's um, popularity. One, no. There used to be, yeah, not on tour level. There used to be, you know, back in, back, there used to be a tournament in Hyderabad. Yep, exactly. But, um, which predated her, yeah. Which predated her, but that's no longer there. Um, Russia, uh, we can talk about Russia, and they do have three events. But when you talk about like for the number of Russian players that are in the top 100 or top 50, yeah. Ben, how many Russian journalists are on site ever? Almost none. Almost none. Like there will like, occasionally be like one like I think he's Slovak journalist who speaks Russian. Yes. And like we'll yeah, talk to the players in guy. Russian, and yeah, they yeah. yeah, but and he might sell it back to Russia or something. But yeah, there's like nobody, nobody, right. and it's and, and, and yeah, it's interesting. Um, that makes it, I mean that yeah. is a pretty that's a pretty significant thing, right? I mean like we're talking about like you know Russian sponsors, and you know so that's the thing that I look at, right? I mean China has opened up, and and we talk about the trend over the last you know 15 years or so about tournaments leaving the U.S specifically more so than mm-hmm. because I think the U S probably as a country has taken the biggest hit. I mean, not as a country, but like a well, region. Well, we also, the U S started out with such a huge lead. I mean, that's the thing like, and, that, and, and, this, and this goes to one of the complaints I got about my list is that it was too U S centric. Like women's pro tennis was a U.S. concept. It really was. <laughs> and the Virginia slims tour and the dueling USDA tours are both U S things. And Britain had a little bit of a foothold in it. I mean, Britain had Wimbledon always, obviously, and had a, a smaller circuit of events that they had there in the early days of the pros. But um, it was always American, first and foremost. And players, you know, like your, uh, I haven't said this name yet, Margaret Court would come over to um, play uh, tennis, like pro tennis in the U.S. It would be like kind of, you'd set up shop in the U.S. and that's where you were based. It was in a U.S. league. But the, the Americans wouldn't go to Australia. Right. And the, and the uh, you know, basically the tour was basically Virginia Slims of, and then insert any one of like 20 U.S. cities. You know, it was Virginia Slims of Chicago, Virginia Slims of Houston, Virginia Slims of, you know, Palm Springs, Virginia Slims of Hilton Head. You know, yeah, and, am I, yeah. I mean, am I wrong that like, um, that, I mean, historically, when you think about it, yeah, obviously the Virginia Slims tour in the U.S., but there was also the Bridgestone stuff which is a japanese company mm-hmm. that was um yeah bridgestone i think was the one who's bridgestone had, a, kind of had its own league, I want to say. circuit is that was that right yeah i don't know i don't I know the i did know this at some point they're, they're god the tours went through so many name changes i just know I think... billy talks about the bridgestone tournaments in in japan all the time huh. but yeah they were I could be... they were an early sponsor yeah. anyways i think that um, no I just... that's that's fine I, I i think that yeah i i think that on the american side and people pointed to 
Um, and then we got through your rush where we can get to throw the others on my list. And people pointed to Steffi Graf. And so Steffi Graf made it popular in Europe. I don't necessarily buy that. I mean, I think that the tour, both men's and women's tours shifted more towards continental Europe uh, in the late 90s. And as America sort of receded, both of them went there. And But the women's game particularly went so much more to Eastern Europe that I don't think of Graf as being like a particularly strong, you know, geographical magnetic gra- force in bringing this epicenter of the sport to Germany. I just don't really buy that per se. Germany, like you said, in tournaments only has two tournaments now and neither of them very big. Oh, Stuttgart's big. It's like a punches above its weight as a premier. What's um, the other German tournament? Nuremberg. Oh, Nuremberg. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, I Matt mean, Gastein like, is gone. That's why. Okay, yeah, that Nuremberg. Was, that yeah. was not, that was yeah. Austria, but yeah. Um, oh. Anyway, it's fine. Um, no, but like, uh, yeah, Germany is not on the map that way in a way that China is and it's growing and like one well, part also, one person we haven't mentioned and who got mentioned some people's lists is naomi osaka and osaka is just too friggin' new for me to ever think about including here but and it's too early to tell like what her impact will be on the sport in japan and on japanese culture writ large and world culture writ large but like with lena i think there's already evidence of things shifting in a way that you can trace back to her that i think is sufficient Render, yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah. yes, it's way too early for, for Naomi Osaka. And, and based on but what my kind of sense is within like Japanese culture, and especially with respect to women's sport, I don't think that Naomi is going to completely shift the axis of mm. where like there are five tournaments in Japan. That's that's not going to happen. Um, but but I mean, so that's that's primarily my, my big argument. And, you know, when you look at the women's tour and what, that it is kind of shifting and, and kind of redistributing, I guess. And, and yeah, the U.S. had a head start and now those tournaments are shifting over to Europe or Asia um, and specifically China. I think that it's a, just a really it's been an interesting trend to kind of like watch happen simply because as European tournaments also maybe get picked up and, and move to to Asia as well. Because the one thing that I'm always a little bit, I get weirded out by, I guess, when mm-hmm. WTA fans say stuff like this, is like, but, okay, you have an event in America or in Europe, mm-hmm. and they are struggling to find sponsors that want to invest in women's tennis. Mm-hmm. You have a Chinese, like, tournament or like a an interested party in china who was willing to open up the wallet mm-hmm. to fund whatever like for women's tennis and i i've never really understood why it, people were just like oh no 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 you should definitely just like stay in the states or just go out of business or, or just yeah just go out of business just like have your you know it's like oh i want a full european indoor swing okay if you guys can drum up the money right i'm sure that we would we would do it but so that's where I think that you have to like kind of understand where Lena's impact is, is that as these markets, these traditional markets were shrinking, like that money was never going to be there whether Lena existed or not, right? Like, And yeah. then for her to then basically open up, basically blow the, the door off of a safe of money, mm-hmm. just to put it incredibly crassly, yeah. in China, in a market where they don't see women's sport as lesser, they don't see the – w like – they're excited to have it. Yeah. And there's a level there's a level of passion there. Like, you know, it may not be the massively packed out stadiums that people want to see, but like the players are getting paid and they're getting and there's more jobs that are being offered over I mean 
it that that's when you have to understand like when we talk about the impact and the influence and the importance of what Lena did in terms of of buoying the tour and kind of like creating more money for the players. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's not. I mean, Shenzhen has double the prize money of the World Tour Finals. Of that's the men's stunning. World Tour Finals, yes. Yes. It's like 8 versus 16 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or 8, 14, something like that. I mean, it's like, yeah. It's, it's close. But it, it's like, I mean, holy crap. And I don't think that, like, you can, on the one hand, a one beginning of this argument, talk about how Billie Jean is so important for, you know, getting women paid. And then, on the other hand, like, kind of turn your nose up at Lena getting women paid. Like, Seriously. they're both getting women paid. And as, you know, Billy says, like, one of her many catchphrases on the Billie Jean King bingo board, which I hold so dearly. Love the bingo board. Is, you know, the money is the message. And, like, yes. women, Lena and, and China have shown that they value women's tennis and are willing to invest in it. And that's, at least for the time being, that's happening. And the checks are clearing and it works. And, you know, like, those, those like, you were, I think, maybe alluding to, but, like, it happened within the last couple of weeks that, uh, or even last week, I think, that New Haven announced that it sold its sanction right. to uh, Zhengzhou. It's a Chinese city. Again, a Chinese city I had never heard of, but Lina is putting these places on the map by, you know, expanding what the horizons of women's tennis are, expanding the map and expanding the people who get to see it and the cultures and who who is at the table. And that's, I think, all very traceable to her. And it could, it would, might have started without her. And I think the WTA did, like, open an office in Beijing and things like that before she won a Grand Slam. I think I have the chronology on that right. But, like, she legitimized it. And solidified it in a way. I mean, like, yes, this Chinese gambit strategy angle can work. And it can lead to a product on the court that is yeah. viable and credible and sustainable. And now, the money is yeah. the message. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's totally true. And, and, I mean, I'm pretty sure this is right, unless I'm completely misremembering, but the China Open in Beijing... Is the is the has the highest pay purse of any of the four premium mandatories? Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, more Indian Wells, more than Miami, and more than Madrid. So, like, I don't know. It's weird to like have like WTA fans who are like ostensibly. I mean, I'm not saying they're all feminists. I'm sure people are WTA fans for a variety of different reasons, mm-hmm. but a lot of them are who are like, like you don't want to go to a market that values it. Yeah. That's weird to me. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think that's something that we kind of just like, we understand maybe as I mean, we're both kind of me more than you, but both NHL fans or NHL aware. And like, it's been like a trend in the NHL. Yeah. that has been controversial, like small Canadian cities losing their teams to like new markets in non-traditional, you know, warm American cities, you know, like, or not always Canadian, but like the Minnesota team moved to Dallas, the, Right, yeah. um, the uh, Quebec team moved to Colorado. You know, the Winnipeg team moved to Phoenix. Like, right. these are things, like, we understand that sometimes. And a lot of traditionalists frown at that and say the game should be, you know, the game belongs more to Canada and feels more authentic there. And that's not wrong. It. Right. <laughs> it's not wrong. But, like, if you can't criticize in, in capitalism, you know, you follow the money. And that's you where that's, that's where the money is. and. Almost all those teams, Southern teams, have survived. Not all thrived, but they're all, you know, still around 20-odd years later, except for Atlanta didn't last very long. But, you know, so be it. Like, there's a, uh, yeah, there's an interesting uh, parallel there, I think, in terms of, and maybe as cynical Americans, we, we sense that 
more than other people are willing to. Yeah, admit. maybe. I mean, yeah. or just this. I I don't know. Maybe as Americans, we're not attached as much to tradition because it, it's something we that, are a baby of a country, so we have no tradition. That's but like, true. you know what I mean? Like, we're so, all from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I under I absolutely understand the desire. I don't know, but it's um. I, I know that I've had this discussion with players sometimes when we're in Wuhan or we're in Beijing and, you know, I know that it's the end of the season and I know that people are tired and, you know, things like that. But I'm like, okay. I mean, there's nearly over the next two weeks, this same number of points on offer as at a slam. Yeah. It's 1900 points. Fuck if you can off, sweep, you know? if yeah. you, yeah, if you can sweep Wuhan and Beijing. Hey, Caroline Garcia. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's massive. So, you know, and the money is super good. Like they are paying you like absurd amounts of, of prize money yeah. to like show up and, you know, take a photo in front of a photo board, sign a few autographs, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get, and I get that. It, and I get that it can be culture shock and it can be things that don't feel like the environments in which these women, primarily North American and European women you know, grew up playing tennis in and the sort of ethos and the flavor of it is different. Um, and that can be jarring, but you know, that's tennis expanding and growing. But I, but I also tell for sure. And I tell them like, I mean, I, I remember having this conversation with somebody on the bus of, of to site. And I was just like, you guys, I mean, just think about what it's like for the Chinese players the whole year or the Japanese players the whole year, like the whole year is them like trying to, understand what an Applebee's is Mm -hmm. or like, you know, or to like, you know, never hear your native tongue to like, you know, and just try to make it work. And, you know, Wang Shang isn't kidding when she says like, no, I play better in China because there's Chinese food. Yeah. And And people might think that's a joke, but it's true. So like, I always try to tell them like, just like, stop being so like, Western centric and thinking that everything the world revolves around us. Like, it's one billion people here. And it's unique. The stuff that's on that menu, one billion people eat it. <laughs> and they're fine. So just eat it. Like, don't worry about it. Like, It's a unique thing for tennis. It's a unique challenge for tennis compared to even, like, you know, on the, well, I don't know what the women's golf tour looks like. But like, the men's golf tour, I've heard compared to this, compared to the ATP. Like, almost all the events are in the U.S. Or you can certainly play a full schedule and, like, go to the U.S. and it's been, like, a few weeks in Britain, you know, and, like, never have to go anywhere they don't speak right. English. And being a much more culturally homogenous place, it's less geographically demanding. And it is tough. I mean, like, the sort of around the world in 300 days type Jules Vernian adventure we put tennis players on every year is at times ridiculously, you know, strenuous compared to most other professional sports with the demand of them. But the rewards are there. And if you don't want to, if you want to be a, you know, Western Hemisphere only player, feel free and be poorer for it. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, off, I've randomly I've thought about this sometimes just as a thought exercise. Like, what would it look like if you restructured tennis to be where it was a little bit more kind of like golf or like even like soccer, mm-hmm. where everybody kind of like picked their their circuit, right? So if mm-hmm. you wanted, there's a North America only circuit, European circuit, Asia circuit, like whatever, South American, and then the majors then became. What, you know, basically for soccer, like Champions League or like whatever, like, okay, so four times a year, everybody comes together. So you almost had like, like conference style, like NCAAs, you know, like everybody competes within their own little confine Mm -hmm. and you all have your own individual ranking. Like you're number one in Asia tour, you're number one in European regional tours. 
But then like four times a year at the slams, everybody comes together. And that's when we duke it out to figure out who is actually the best in the world. I don't think that as a business it works. No. I mean, I think that our business model is amazing. But like, it's, been it's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. It's been discussed. And I feel like there were ver- earlier proto versions of the tours that looked a little more like that, especially the men's side, I think. Kind of had more of a regional tour thing going on. Um, and yeah, this is just better to have. It's so great. I mean, the mandatory tournaments, players can complain about them, but how cool is it to be able to go to Cincinnati and know that you're going to get all the best players in the world showing up there, men's and women's? Like, Premier Five. Uh, yeah, Premier Five. It's it's pretty amazing. It's not mandatory. Well, okay. It's almost everybody shows up to you seem You seem to really forget that a lot. Okay. Well, it gets <laughs> it gets pretty much all the same players that show up to the mandatory tournaments, put it that way. Still and, a Premier Five. Okay. And <laughs> fine. Indian Wells, whatever. Um, to be able to go places and get that guaranteed product and that sort of you know, every you know, all hands on deck type tournaments that the tour is built around at the slams and more and more around the rest of the calendar too, I think is uh is a pretty great product that people should not take for granted. Globalization. It's good. Yeah. Embrace it. And thank you, <laughs> Lena, for helping make that happen. Thank you, Lena. That was a good Lena tangent, but I do think she does open up all those issues and that is important context for why uh, she outpunches, like I said, her, her trophy weight. All right, so um, after our five Mount Rushmore's we agree on, I want to get to the other ones who I mentioned in my top ten. Wait, uh, hold on. So yeah. do we agree? So I know that's my Rushmore. Is that your Rushmore? That's just uh, five that overlap. That's our five 10. that overlap. I didn't want. I really don't exactly. Rank I don't think 10. this is your Rushmore. No, it's not, it's not my Rushmore. No, I mean, yeah, no, yeah. I don't think that. No, um, I don't know what my top five is. Uh, it's a tougher bar that you set, even though you made yourself a little easier by not doing a top ten. You made it harder by doing a top five. In some ways, um, I, we agree. I don't know. I can't. I can't think of ranking my ten. I don't want to start with that because it's going to be. No, no, no. That's totally be, fine. I just tough. wanted. I simply just wanted to. I didn't want to like for people to assume in the same way that people assumed your list was my list on right. Twitter. Yeah. I didn't want people to assume that my Rushmore list was your Rushmore right. list because I don't think that's accurate. No, it's not. I mean, that's I, all. I would have like, for example, I would have Serena ahead of Venus on my list. Sure. Just because I, Venus wasn't on my initial list, and so. Um, that's sort of, I have okay, to do let's that. Let's jump, um, let's jump on into here, it then. Here's my lessons. The other clarification in our list differences here, because what is tennis without competing rule structures? Um, <laughs> so on brand. Well played. So on brand. Um, is that my list, uh, includes non, uh, people who predate the WTA era, the open era, which yours did not. Yours was purely. New tour, w- who did? WTA, right. Starting <laughs> in 1968, basically. And or even, or sure. even 73, whenever WTA started and going forward from there. Um, yep. so mine has a couple before that well, I listed before these parameters were set or before you set your parameters and I didn't again, very tennis. Um, so my women who get in, in this sort of long advantage set format that I'm playing in my list, uh, Suzanne Longlon is my first one, uh, who most people probably only know a lot of more casual tennis fans probably only know as being a stadium the same way that I only knew Margaret Court as a stadium for a long time. Uh, but Suzanne Longlon, who was French was sort of the first, like, women's tennis superstar and one of the first women's sports superstars period and was someone who was a huge icon of like women's liberation and women's fashion and freedom of expression and all these sort of things kind of in a jazz age 1920s flapper sort of way uh she was the first you know top player to not play in a corset as crazy as that sounds because in the earlier more british centric victorian days women were far more restricted physically and culturally 
by such a weird sport it's so weird and like and it's so weird. <laughs> so weird it's so weird that a lot of these like weird vestiges are like you can kind of still trace them to a few things that are still on the sport in 2019 oh 100 percent. it's all part of the dna of the sport it's all part of the dna of the sport but, but suzanne was the first woman to really break free of that and she was just sort of this great bon vivant expressionist she seems <laughs> imagine like <laughs> alize cornet but like multiplied by a thousand in terms of extraness. Like Suzanne was really? remarkably extra. Oh yeah, she was I haven't like, done. I haven't done enough research on Suzanne. Well, so she's I'm... like she's like infamously like always like drinking brandy during matches and like having like who wasn't who wasn't and having her father. I still do. Her father would give her Just these kidding. like brandy soaked sugar cubes, which seems very equine to me. Giving an athlete sugar cubes, I don't know. But, um, and it was sort of her whole thing. She was always like having dramatic fainting spells and just being complaining about things and just being, being this show, this production in a way that made women's sports entertainment, like viable people wanted to see and behold this in a way that I don't think it hadn't before. I'm sure it hadn't been before. That, and like, that is straight up in the WTA DNA still. <laughs> and there, and there's, ta- there's one of the legends and I'm not sure, I've never been totally sure of this, but people talk about how the demands to see her were so big that it's part of why Wimbledon wound up building a center court that it did because like they could not fit all the Suzanne interest into one place. Damn, Susie. So Suzanne was, was that, uh, she also had a few other things, you know, she had a domineering father who was her tennis coach in a way that sort of set the mold for a lot of other fathers in many years to go. She was, yeah, this sort of graceful, sort of sexy, elegant thing. Although it's like awkward because all the history books make pains to talk about how ugly she was and how homely and it's sad and they're all like, to be clear, she was not a good-looking woman, but people still thought her very appealing. <laughs> and it's like every book goes out of its way to be like, by the way, no, <laughs> sorry, Suzanne. And that's why it's just sort of cringy and mean. This is just um, the moment to just interject and just remind people, you got to read old tennis books. Oh, God. It's yeah. wild stuff. There's some great it's, stuff. It's where everything is. It's just. So that's one of my, one of my missions yeah. in life is to communicate all that stuff to the, the current generation more. And hopefully this, <laughs> this segment helps with that. Uh, and she was the first woman who was like considered enough of a attraction to to have a sell to turn pro like she finally you know tennis was and people don't know pre-open era means like you're not allowed to accept money to play tennis and there were lots of under the table ways in which that was circumvented at times shamateurism right as billy jean called it and other people called it too but suzanne was the first woman to be like i can make a living having people pay to see me and people have been paying to see her for a long time before she turned pro, but she was eventually, I think she would probably say like later than she should have otherwise um, turned pro. And that meant at that time she could not play Wimbledon anymore. She could not play the Grand Slams anymore. And she kind of was her own, you know, one woman tour. And she brought along, I forget what the name of the person was, who was her main, you know, her she sort of Washington. She was the original labor club. Right. Oh, God. She was, um, she was sort of more like a, I was going to say more like a Harlem Globetrotters. And like she had an opponent who like went with her and she played all the time. Um, who was Aww, nowhere she near Washington her match. Generals. She had a Washington Generals, exactly. And so yeah. that was that was Suzanne. And so Suzanne was the first person, I think, to really make women... And she was like a media sensation and full of controversy and all these things. And, you know, there was... And she was that. And there were other people who, who were famous, too. I mean, one of the people who was pointed out or was mentioned in a lot of lists was Helen Wills Moody, who was the sort of American women's tennis star. Um, but for my readings of it, you know, nearly a century later... Hold on. You hear the sirens? I can. Okay. Takes are so hot. 
Oh my gosh, the takes are on fire, y'all. Uh, these are the hottest Helen Wills Moody takes we've had in a long time. Um, no, but uh, Helen Wills Moody was not anywhere near as sort of extra and liberating. I mean, she was a great player. Uh, and she won, I think, 19 Grand Slam. And was just, yeah, it was a big player and was a media star, but to me did not do it in a, as dynamic a way as Suzanne. Did not sort of lay a template for like what women's tennis can be as entertainment. She was actually seen... It's sort of almost an archetype of like an Everett or like a Sharapova in terms of being really stoic on court. And um, not that Maria's stoic per se, but you know what I mean. Like her, she, her like nickname was Little Miss Poker Face. Steely. Yeah, Little yeah. Miss Poker Face they called her. So, um, yeah. That Ew, was, that's that gross. Was... That just that just screams like smile. Like, you know what I mean? Like she just doesn't smile when she oh, plays. Even like in the old days, you look back and there's like people who like get the sort of cringy Sabine Lissicky, like we like her because she smiles stuff and it's like oh ugh, stop with that enough of that ugh. just as an aside because mm-hmm. it's a pet peeve of mine and it's just gonna get worse as time goes on <laughs> people stop talking about like oh naomi osaka never smiles like who gives a shit like let it alone and she does so chill out she smiles Continue. when she wanted smiles <laughs> the funny thing it was, it was that, genuinely that's funny, literally though. what she says like she's like i smile when i want to i just want to make sure it's authentic and i was like that's such a good burn it is funny <laughs> like, though when she was like i forgot to smile like i meant to and i forgot to <laughs> Yes, that was funny. And then the other person I would mention, uh, my other sort of pre-open era person, who I feels like felt feels obligatory to mention, um, and I think she is obligatory to mention. And I do think if people want to debate her and her if she's top ten or not, fine. But I, she's in my ten. It's Althea Gibson, who was the Jackie Robinson of tennis, who broke down the color barriers and was the first African American woman to be allowed to play in major tennis tournaments when another player, uh, Alice Marble. Uh, wrote, um, who was a white champion of the day of the 40s and 50s, wrote, you know, an open letter, letter to the editor or something in one of the tennis magazines saying that it was ridiculous that, um, this is a very simplified version of the story, but basically that um, Althea should be able to play. And then eventually the U.S. Lawn Tennis Association, as it was then called, relented and let her play. And I think she drew, maybe not Marble, but one of like, they put her against like the top seed in the first round of that 1950 U.S. Open. It was like a big <laughs> sheriff esque showdown right away, <laughs> but much bigger. Um, and Althea, yeah, was the first one who, you know, I think my sense, and this is just obviously older people who are in the sport would have to answer this, but my sense is that Althea really didn't get recognized as much as she probably should have for being the breakthrough person until the Williams sisters came around. And people were trying to put the Williamses in context and be like, wow, it feels like the Williamses are, you know, breaking through here in this new way and bringing this new look and this new new community to tennis. Is there any precedent for this? And people were like, well, actually, Althea did it, you know, 40 odd years ago. And that's my sense of she was sort of a bit overlooked and forgotten. And in a very kind of pre-open era way, like she, I don't think ever was able to turn professional in tennis. I'm not sure there was a a market for professional women's tennis for her that she found viable as a career. And actually, wound up, she wound up switching to golf um, to try to make some more money in women's pro golf, which I think was a little bit ahead of tennis in terms of being a, a pro circuit. Um, but yeah, but she she was the one who was first. And she everyone who's not white in tennis pretty much, I think, can point to Althea as being the person who really, like we talked about with Venus, but took far more um, abuse and... and uh, mistreatment and obstacles uh than than anyone else and arthur ash followed her and Zena garrison followed her and yvonne gulagong followed her and all these different people i think can point to uh althea 
for that. And she was a great player too. I think she won like, uh, I don't know, five or six, seven slams somewhere in that range. So she was not a, she was probably a better player within tennis than Jackie Robinson was within baseball. Not that Jackie was a bad player, mm. but he wasn't like the number one pl- player, I don't think at any time. Um, yeah, she was a, she was a big deal. And uh, somebody who I think people recognize more and more now <laughs> the way that, who was it? Who, what did, who did Trump say that about? He said that about somebody. People were like, people are recognizing more. Oh, more really good job. Somebody, who was that? Somebody who we were aware of the whole time. Um, yes. Anyway, but I do think with Althea, like Althea is getting a U.S. Open statue dedicated to her next year in 2019, this year in 2019 at the next tournament. Like, so people are take people were sleeping on Althea, to be clear. Like people are kind of, I think, only understanding yeah, what she it's... did in, in a later context. So in an interesting way, I think she gets on this list in a way now that she might not have gotten on in like even like 1980 or something. I don't think people would have really recognized what she did. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, and and I know that that efforts are being made to kind of make sure that her story gets told. Mm-hmm. There's a great documentary um, about her. Yeah, exactly. There's a documentary uh, out there and things. And I think it's it's one of those. I think Althea is one of those kind of um, reminders that, you know, so much of our sport, because it is so young. I mean, people forget that, at least in the open era and, and obviously even before that, I mean, you know, our great champions are still alive. Like yeah. we are, you know, like Rod Laver is sitting right there watching Roger Federer play tennis, right? Yeah. Like Chrissy and Martina are regular commentators to the point where I feel like a younger generation doesn't realize that they're like, like who they are, like their stature. Yeah. Um, because they just, they, you know, they know them as commentators who, whatever. Oh, I think people totally uh, have that with Chrissy a thousand percent. People like don't realize she played. Yeah. yeah. It's, really frustrating um but um but yeah so and with Althea because like later on in life like she kind of um withdrew a little bit um I know that there, she had financial issues and mm-hmm. things like that um that's uh, we don't really have her voice as part of her story because she you know like she passed away before really a record of what her experience from her perspective really was i feel like really yeah. fleshed out which i think is like such a massive loss yeah and she has a book i think I she think has a book that she, she does yeah yeah but it, but it just, you know it a lot. yeah but if i'm like looking at my bookshelf and you see like what four books off on billy three or three on martina like you know a, a couple with chrissy pammy of course yeah. um like two from ted tindling um yeah, it's I don't know. I, I I get sad. I will say that when I think about I think what we kind of lost by not um yeah. anyway, people, kind of having her in the fold. The way that people understood I think immediately with Jackie Robinson and there was obviously a lot of attention on Althea when she was playing, but I feel like it faded. Um and obviously yeah. women's tennis was a smaller sport for sure at that time than baseball. Um but uh, I think, and there was a ticker tape parade for her when she, after she won one of her Grand Slams in, you know, Manhattan. Like, she was recognized oh, cool. in some ways at times. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think she was forgotten and now it's being, and there's some sort of corrective work being done, which is good to see. And better late than never, although it is too late because she passed away, you know, many years ago and I think deserved more recognition when she was there. And, and I think that, yeah, it wasn't until sort of when you see people sort of talking about her for the first time, it's when it's in the context of, venus making a slam final or serena winning her first slam in 99 like that's when people sort of like like hey we should 
call up Althea and see what she thinks of, of these new kids. Oh yeah. I do you remember know? that. Yeah. yeah. So that was sort of the tone. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, so, it's, it's an interesting one though with her because it is kind of like, you know, yes, you're the, f- it becomes about impact and influence. Right. Right. Because, so she's an interesting one for the important quote unquote definition. Right. right. Cause she's forgotten. Yeah. And, and it, it's some, it's, it, she was forgotten for quite a long time. And so can you be important and forgotten? I would say yes. For sure. Oh, 100%. But I think yes. people would disagree. Yeah. So, oh, I don't yeah. know. I mean, if, if people don't know who you are and you're, it's not as easy to trace an impact. Like, anyway, I think I, she's in my list for sure. And she was an easy one for me to include. But I, if people were reluctant, weren't wanting to argue on that one or didn't have her in their own top tens, I wouldn't go ballistic necessarily. Like, if, if you think that her impact faded and there are other people who have a more lasting, prominent impact now, like, Okay, but she's she's easy pick for me. Fair enough. My next pick, uh, so those are my two. I forgot my little quote from uh, somebody from uh, on, I don't know if I pulled an Althea quote, but I pulled a quote from uh, Suzanne Longlon from listener Alex Lindsay, who said that Suzanne Longlon proved that women's tennis can be interesting to watch, which, like, it's true. It was not a thought before that. Like, the whole idea yeah. that it was a viable spectator activity was this Suzanne Longlon thing, pretty much. So, um my next one, chronologically, is Monica Sellas. Skipping way ahead, about you know, forty <laughs> years, uh, from Althea Gibson to Monica Sellas. We mentioned already Billie Jean and Martina and Chrissy, but then it gets for me to Monica Sellas. And Monica Sellas, for me, almost foremost is on-court impact in terms of playing style more than anybody else in my top ten. Like Monica, just like hit the absolute crap out of the ball, and tried to at every possible opportunity, in a way that just had not been done in women's tennis before. Like, and she's, and she's the one who invented, as Mary Crow would call it, big babe tennis. And that's what people are doing now. Almost. I mean, there's obviously a variety of playing styles, but for the next 20 years, women from the Williamses to Sharapova to Ivanovich to uh, Osaka can all trace their sort of tennis DNA. And there's more I'm not naming to Monica Sellas and being big power off both sides in a way that had not been done like that before. Well, and it's not even just about big power off both sides, but I think it's a little bit of the mentality of like, if I can just, I, if I just out hit you, totally, I will, I will win and I will build an entire career off of that mentality. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, even some of the, the, the players that you mentioned, I don't even trace them back to Celis, but like a player like an Ostapenko, mm-hmm. like that kind of like yeah. Georgie, like that kind of idea, which let's be let's be honest is is a thing that has um even though Celis was like an academy kid yeah. from through Boletaries and everything but i i just kind of feel like a lot of like dads just or like inexperienced coaches like saw this and just like applied that yeah to to coaching young girls and i'm just like you know hey arena sabalenka just hit the shit out of the ball yeah and don't worry about don't worry about tactics. And this is, and again, this volley. is an over. I won't, I won't teach you how to volley. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Don't worry about the net. You never have to even come close to it until you're like crossing on changeovers. Yeah. But like, and, and this is obviously an, an incredibly crass oversimplification of, of Celis, I think. Yeah. But that's kind of the point. I think that, you know, in the same way that kind of, you know, like, like what is that line from Devil Wears Prada, you know, when she's talking about the color and it's like, yeah, this color that was on the fashion runways trickles down and is then, you know, four seasons later being sold at Old Navy. Yeah. Like, 
it's kind of the same thing sometimes with 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 top players, right? Like if, especially they come and they play like a di- very different type of game, how that translates and trickles down. I feel like Monica Sellis just kind of was like not what she meant to do, and she's a better tennis player than this. But the way that people interpreted her game was like just bash. Yeah. And and Monica, and that's the template. Monica, people will point out. Mary Carillo talks about this a lot with Monica. Monica like did not bash, but did not spray. Like, Monica, yes. like, was not making errors. Monica would, like, right. have that's, her 30 and winners and only, like, four unforced in a match. Like, and routinely. that's what made Monica sell us. That's what like, made her so what, good. Right. But I do that's think, what made her special. And I do think, like, in this sort of whole important and influential being not really a positive or negative connotation, I think you can say that, like, and you could even, if you wanted to, add this with the grunting, too, like, Monica Sellas in arguably made tennis uglier, women's tennis uglier, like, made it less variety full made it less you know you know steffi graf who was a lot of people in the in the uh in the comments of my replies were talking about how steffi graf introduced power tennis and like okay she hit the ball hard but like a only on her forehand and b she still like tried to like carve up and point construct in a way steffi played tennis was more right she played tennis she played like old school capital t tennis in this way she did it very effectively obviously and in a, in a more sort of um uh, a more, I don't know, proactive way, maybe, and more front-footed and being this kind of baseline aggression that was different, but nothing like Monica Sellis did in terms of just being like, I am going to see the simplest route to win the point and take it as quickly as I can. And in this way that wasn't even like Servant Volley, which is what predated her in terms of aggressive tennis, where it was like Servant Volley was at its worst. I think people just kind of like tried to do the same thing at every point and hope it worked sometimes. You know, like throw a serve up there and run and see, hope for the best and increase your odds that way. But Monica did it in this sort of more reactive, but still, uh, you know, locked in way. That was a committed way that I think has, is really defining what women's sense looks like now. And uh, so, yeah, she's she's sort of my main pick in terms of everybody in terms of just playing style. Like, I think she's the most sort of like playing style, even though almost nobody does the two hands on both sides thing she did. Like, the mindset yeah. is still, I think, massive. No, I think that's true. I mean, it, it, if I, for example, if I go back and watch tape and I watch – because every, it, it becomes a debate between Steffi and Monica, right, for this list, for a lot of people. If you can't include both and you had to choose one, like, people have to pick their sides. And I think that if I had to go back – if I go back on, and yeah, watch on YouTube and I look at Steffi, old Steffi matches versus old Monica matches – Monica's matches look closer to what I see today. I watch Steffi it is, and like I don't see anybody doing that. Like it's so different. It's great. 100%. Well, the like, slice, nobody, hand, the slice backhand slice. obviously makes it that way. The inside out forehand for sure. I think that that's probably a shot that Steffi introduced in the women's game, maybe even in the men's game too. I don't know. And but the like crazy running around that Steffi did. Like we don't see that. Yeah, like nowadays exactly. women are just as comfortable if not more on their backhands in a way that is not remotely recognizable to Steffi. Like, if you're if you're judging Steffi by the influence future tennis metric, I don't think she, you know, gets high marks on that, really. Well, but um, she, but I mean, that, because the backhand has always been the strongest. I mean, it was almost like Steffi inverted the game, right? Because the backhand has always been the stronger side for the women. Is that true? Historically? Before? Well. It, earlier? I don't no, know. No, you're right. I mean, not off the, because they were slicing. I mean, not like in the wood racket era. I mean, like, but um, and yeah, there wasn't that long a time, I guess, pre-Steffi in the graphite era. That wasn't yeah, that long time. there wasn't a long enough time, you know, but, yeah. but mm-hmm. ever since then, it's been the backhand that's stronger. 
right? Yeah, like I kind of think, he... think of Monica for that. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I would, that, I mean, Monica and, and Chrissy. Yeah. I think are the ones that kind of, I mean, now that's why, that's why a forehand is considered a weapon, right? Because it's almost assumed in the women's game that everybody has a good backhand. One more Chrissy thought on terms of on-court influence. I think she kind of solidified people's thinking that you can be a great and dominant women's tennis player with no serve to speak of. Like, in a way that oh, I think stop. is influential. It's true. No, it's no. true. I give that Chrissy does that. not. No, you do not give Chrissy that. No, Chrissy that's Elena no, Dimitrieva. No, <laughs> no. Dimitrieva was not as good as Chrissy. And Chrissy, like, Chrissy and Tracy then, and other people, like, they were not serving no, big. In a way that, like, Billy that, and Margaret and... Martina were hitting no, big serves. No, the margins between how, where Chrissy and back then with the technology playing with the wood rackets, like, no, I, I don't, back then the serve, I mean, if you could make it into a weapon, great. Like if you can kind of get a kick and a slide, but you were never going to overpower people. Whereas now the difference between what like a Serena can do versus like what, well, you know, like a, I don't know, run of the mill player who serves right around 105 does that's like far bigger gap than what it once was yeah but i don't know i, I still feel like no i don't tag chrissy on that one at all i, I disagree I vehemently I cracked, on that one. I to see chrissy and maybe a little bit of tracy austin in there too like being top and before them too obviously women in the in the wood racket days but those were both well i guess tracy was almost all wood racket but yeah but Chris, wood, chrissy chrissy played into was great player in the post wood era with a no serve so Anyway. Yeah, but that's not but but nobody focused on that. It wasn't like, oh, you don't need it wasn't a revelation. Like it just was that was what the women's game was. I guess, I guess maybe I guess you didn't invent the it. The women's she... game was that you didn't have a serve because at the end at the end of the day the women were always being compared to the guys. So even if you had like a big serve, it still looked soft. Like there wasn't I don't think the 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 facility the, the like the the facil the language facility to really discuss the women's game as to like mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying like it that. still looked like a puff serve regardless of whether Billy was hitting a good one or not because you were comparing it to what you know you saw Laver do yeah. or something or like Tilden or Roscoe so, Tanner or somebody yeah Roscoe Tanner exactly yeah so I don't think so I think that the more that you don't need a serve but you can still win I really think that's a dementia of a thing <laughs> fair enough but so okay. maybe you should wild carter into your list but absolutely continue. someone did send me to Mitch on a list which I appreciated <laughs> and smiled and immediately deleted um <laughs> Uh, not really. Uh, I'd never delete emails. Um, speaking of serve, can I get to Serena? Mama, D M Mama Dementieva is judging you with uh, a very tense Vera, face. Oh my gosh. Vera Dementieva. I don't think they, Russians don't really do like rosary praying, but that was always her vibe. <laughs> always a rosary vibe from Vera Dementieva. Um, I, I heard, by the way, that Dementieva and like, I saw this on Twitter, that Dementieva and Miskina like still like play tennis with each other like several times a week or something. I yeah. love that. Yeah. I love that. Did you, um, in St. Petersburg, like they always play an exhibition uh, where they play and um, and it's really fun. And it, it does. It looks like two people who play with each other all the time. Mm. Like there's just like a seamlessness. It's it's lovely. It's like the highlight of the St. Petersburg week. If you're there is like make sure you go to the exhibition because it's Elena Dementieva, Mesquina, and then usually two other players in the year that I went, which was last year. It was Kleisters and one other player i know my old my only my only there because she's like part she she's she she she's like is one of the execs of the tournament but i feel like it was one other player anyway it's 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 fun that they have a good time wildcard my only onto this important list just because she'll always show up to an xo 
Hey y'all, quick interruption for one more point I realized I forgot about Monica Sellers is that when she was stabbed, it completely changed the way that security is thought of and done at sporting events ever since, especially in tennis, but it had a huge wide reaching impact in terms of celebrity fears of stalking and threats and all these things were taken much more seriously after Monica, even though it's not directly something she caused, it is something she's inexorably attached to. Uh, so next, just transition from serving. I think it's easy to talk about Serena here, who's on my top 10 also. Uh, we talked obviously about her a lot in the Venus context of your Rushmore, but um, I think Serena, even just, there's a lot of ways to define Serena, obviously, in terms of what she's done to the importance, but just like her cultural crossover that she's doing now and has done for a long time in her career. I mean, just being immediately resonant in a way that both Williamses were, to be clear, but Serena kind of embraced it more and was ready to be a pop culture figure and to be, you know, going on stage at the ESPN Awards with Jamie Foxx and with, you know, making and trying to be an actress at the same time and um, being in rap lyrics and, and everything that kind of went with her persona and being a kind of reality star type player in a modern way. And this has obviously gone to a whole nother level in, we talked about the show many times before, the Beyonceification of, of Serena. Like she... Um, it's this hugely important crossover cultural figure who represents symbolically all these really major topics in society of, you know, African-Americans and women and African-American women and motherhood now. And she, her, I met with somebody, you know, last, last year or somebody was talking about like, she's like, well, I don't, I don't, you know, really follow tennis that closely, but I follow Serena on Twitter, obviously. And I follow Alexis on Twitter because he's her husband. And I follow Olympia because it's her daughter. And it's like, you don't care about tennis and yet you're following Serena's daughter. Like that's to me her sort of power. And that brings it back to tennis because she then makes all these moments and all these discussions and debates in the last few years become these like today show level topics of like mainstream media debate and American cultural questions about like, America discusses what should the French Open do about seating? It's like, oh my gosh, this is not <laughs> these like arcane by tennis terms conversations that suddenly become like these like important cultural moments because they impact Serena and people feel so invested in Serena. Um, and she's somebody I sort of talked about being a sort of putting down the torch that she carried for a while. Like Serena, with whatever end you think she has in it, she's absolutely holding it high and trying to make it burn brightly and trying to shine a light on things she wants to shine a light on um, for larger social purposes, sometimes for her own promotion purposes, whatever it is, like she made people care and, and has sort of, for me in my time in tennis, there hasn't been like a bigger women's tennis moment than her going for the calendar slam. And I, I realize that's a results oriented thing, but that sort of showed, I think her at the peak of her powers. And for me, she's never, she has not really receded since in the three plus years since then she's become this, really singular finger in uh, American culture that has yeah, then brought sure. this tennis and brought this whole new attention, whole new, you know, level of uh, relevance to women's tennis. Cause in the end, she's still going out there and still has to play, you know, Yastrzemska in the third round and do all these things that like, it's weird when Serena has to do things. And <laughs> I've realized I'm referring to playing Diana Yastrzemska as a thing, but like, you know, when she still is this big figure who's on the cover of, national magazine every other week and then still like you know doesn't have a buy at indian wells because her ranking isn't high enough so she's played ds first and you know like it's it's an interesting sort of intersection to me that's 
doesn't always feel coherent, but it's, it's fascinating seeing Serena as a sort of sometimes bigger than tennis person still be within tennis and making tennis sort of expand to, to fit her in at times, it feels like. And she wouldn't be big without tennis. I mean, tennis made her, too. That's why she is who she is, is tennis. For sure. Um, I think that she, I mean, the through line that I see is like basically like kind of Chrissy to Serena. Like, you know, that big icon that helps yeah. lift the sport. That, That's a good call. Um, that, you know, it becomes bigger than the sport where, yeah, it almost feels, you know, a little bit kind of like, why do you even bother playing tennis? Like you have like, you know, this whole life set up ahead of you that that's perfectly fine without swinging a racket. Um, I do think that there's a little bit of, of, or a potential for two different types of biases with respect to swing. I mean, I think that she's obviously, if, if I had to expand my list to 10, she's obviously on my list. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there are two potential biases for Serena um, that I could see um, which is a an American bias sure. because her stature within the States is very different than not very different. But at least I still remember having so many conversations with international press after last year's U.S. Open and kind of like them telling me kind of how their countries were reacting to what had happened in the final oh, which was versus yep. which was compared to how the Americans were reacting to it, uh, which was the first time that I really kind of um, started to get a sense as to a potential, I don't know if it actually is, could have just been that moment, but um, but just the potential chasm that possibly could exist there. Um, Serena, so, Serena as a phenomenon in this sort of last few years dec- uh, way I'm talking about has been a largely American one. I don't dispute that. Yeah. Right. And then that's the second thing is that I do think that a little bit there can be recency bias with respect to Serena in terms of like what she is now. Um, within the last like five or six years compared to what she was before. And, you know, and some of that is, I don't, I don't think that it's, I don't really have, I, it's not like pro or con. It's just like, I'm just flagging it mm-hmm. just because like Serena over the years has been like, as anybody does, like evolves mm-hmm. <laughs> and changes and, and kind of is different things to different people at different times. And she's different at different times. So she's one of those that like she's absolutely within my top 10 because of just what she's already done. But it's it, she's definitely one that I kind of want to fast forward to like 15 years and mm-hmm. kind of like and be able to like take like a straw poll, like kind of where what what is our what is our sense as to if we if we had to um, kind of take a more solid yeah. view of, of what her legacy is, because it's I mean, I totally agree. Like it's in terms of the uh, I think it's. I think it's John. I don't know who, I don't know who said it, but like, it's kind of, you know, pointless to kind of try and weigh in on a player's legacy while they're still playing. Right. So I feel kind of the same with Serena, which is why like, I just, when I usually sit down to make these lists, like I don't include active players. Yeah. Cause I'm just like, I don't know, man, like what, me... what we would have said about Sharapova three years ago versus that difficult discussion now. Like uh-huh. it's right. So it's like, it's like, let's wait until the book is closed and then we'll talk about your legacy, Leighton Hewitt. But like, <laughs> please close the book. Yes. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I don't know. Like, it's it's interesting. I mean, like, but, I, I I do yeah. think to our previous topic, and we discussed this. One of the differences we have: you have Venus over Serena. I have Serena over Venus. But I do think that time will kind of, I would think, would make it clear like what they did together and apart. It'd be interesting to see like how time remembers Venus or how you know how history treats Venus in terms of versus Serena in terms of 
if their legacies can be more distinct. If there is, you know, if someone writes a great seminal, I would love this to happen. Someone writes a great Venus book. That's one of the cool, cool, cool things about that, that DuVernay uh, 30 for 30. It was like Venus centric in this way that very few things are. Uh, everything's usually both Williams's or just Serena. And that was only Venus in a way that I thought was really, I'm not even sure Serena's in it. Like it's, um, maybe she is, I don't remember. But she wasn't memorable in it if she was. So, um, yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how we do parse them. And, and I do think there is an argument to be made for them being, you know, sharing the same line on this list uh, with so much. And we gave Venus a lot of credit for things in her segment, which I think almost all of which you can copy and paste. Or not all of which, but a lot of which you can copy and paste into Serena. Certainly in terms of raising the bar, in terms of work ethic, and in terms of athleticism, speed, power, um, endure, uh, longevity. Like Christ, I mean, like she's like she's the oldest number one. That's something that doesn't get talked about a lot with Serena. She's True. expanded yeah. and coming back as a mom now too. Like she's expanded what the bounds of a career can look like. And someone like uh, who should I name here? Someone like uh, Naomi Osaka, let's say, could would have reasonably thought as you know in the nineteen nineties, like oh, I'm twenty one now. I'll probably have about seven more years in my career, at, or so. But with like Serena, you can have seventeen more years in your career. And it's just a totally different expansion. And Venus is part well, of that too, but Serena did it as a, as a number one in a more emphatic way. And I, and I do think that, I mean, and even Roger too, but, you know. apart from a lot of the the stuff that I think, I mean, you can dedicate an entire, obviously, I mean, podcast series parsing out Serena yeah. um, and her significance within tennis. But I think that just alone, if you were to isolate and say like how many of, and I guess this applies to Venus too, I suppose. But since Serena is kind of like the standard bearer of greatness in most of most young players' eyes, mm-hmm. um, you know, how many players just don't exist without these two women? Yeah, totally. Or without Serena, and I think that just because of that, and this relates to your controversial top ten pick as well, mm-hmm. is 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 worth is worth weighing Yeah, is that if somebody inspired an entire fleet of, of players behind them, regardless of what their on court accomplishments are or aren't like, that's gotta mean something. Right. Oh, yeah. And I, and I feel like that, I feel very strongly about that with, with like Serena for sure, because like you talk to any, but any young player and it's like, Oh my God, Serena Williams idol. You know, we talked about Yastrzemska and her whole story of like, willing serena on at the australian open i don't know if we talked about that here we want to tell that quickly here on oh NCR? it's great yeah um diana yashremska 18 year old ukrainian now two-time titleist on the wta tour a uh, great player anyways um uh howard feinrich of the ap and i were talking to her um before she was going to play serena the third round at the australian open and we just kind of like you know we're both american reporters and we're kind of asking about the serena angle and she's and she said, oh, my gosh, like I she's such an idol. I respect her so much. And there were two fun little tidbits that came out of the interview. One was that um, that she had that Yastremska had actually walked up to Serena in the locker room um, and just uh, during a weekend practice session or practice time or something and walked mm-hmm. up and saw her and said, I just wanted you to know I respect you so much. And your daughter is amazing, oh. which adorable. Um, and Serena was like, oh my gosh, you're so sweet. And so like, there was context a little bit to eventually kind of like Serena, like talking to her after she was in tears, after she lost, um, like 
because this kid had come up to her and said all this stuff over the weekend. So Serena knew who she was. Mm -hmm. And then the other cool story is that Yastrzemska said, yeah, like when I was young, maybe when I was eight years old, I was in my living room and I was watching the Australian Open and Serena was playing and she was losing and I was getting really stressed out. So I ran upstairs and I got my tennis racket and I brought it downstairs to the living room and and I started to uh, like mimic her. So if Serena hit a forehand, I hit a forehand. If Serena hit a backhand, yeah. I hit a backhand. And she's doing this all in the living room and she's like, and then she won a point and then she won a game and then she won a set. And then she won the match. She came back and she's and I always thought we did it. That's our victory like together. And so like Yastrzemska was like, yeah, I maybe if maybe maybe I'll tell her this. And like, you know, one day I'll tell her this story. And Howard and I looked at each other like, no, I mean, we're going to tell the story. Like, <laughs> don't we'll take care of that. You focus on playing your match. <laughs> How, Howard was hilarious about it. He's like, no, that's our job. We'll take care of it. Don't worry. But it was very sweet. But, you know, you got, you got a young kid in Ukraine in, in, in I think she's from, from Kiev, I think. Okay. Um, just, you know, watching a Serena match and, and connecting and wanting to play and things like that. Again, we talk about the Osakas and, and you know, Naomi Osaka and Mary Osaka don't exist, probably, uh, yeah. if not for the fact that their father saw Venus and Serena and followed the Richard model. Totally. There's always that question as well uh, as to whether... Like, you know, do I put, do, do you put Richard on Mount Rushmore? Do you put, do you put Orsi? The Hall of Fame. I mean, that's, that's been a real question for the Tennis Hall Absolutely. of Fame about putting one or both of their parents in there as, as sort of contributors to the sport. Um, I think that, I think there's a great case to be made for that for sure. Um, yeah. So it, it's, uh, anyways. yeah. So that's, that's Serena. And I think Serena, compared to um, Steffi Graf, who I, I, and I get some people, and I am happy to talk about people I did not put in my list. Um, but for me, Steffi, like, did not capitalize on the platform she had in a way that Serena did. Like, they were both people who, like, really reigned their, in, atop their sports for a long time. And Steffi, I think, in a lot of ways, kind of did, tried to, did not embrace that spotlight or, you know, uh, make the most of it in a way that Serena did often. Um, and I think that sort of counts... Against, and you can say that, you know, not doing something is a choice, too, and is, quote-unquote, important in a way that I almost, part of me, you know, snarkily, if it wasn't just a women list, I could make an argument that one of the top ten most important people in women's tennis was Pete Sampras for being so boring atop the men's game. People started watching the women in the late 90s <laughs> and set the stage for, you know, Thanks the you golden era. <laughs> but really, though, I mean, like, I, I think doing the men's important list, I think, like, Sampras, in terms of, like, a negative, like, in terms of, like, or what he said, what he wasn't, that set up for what could be. I think it's interesting. Anyway, um, so yeah, so uh, Graf, not, I think we talked about Look, her. I mean, I, I, Steffi is my favorite player of all time. Yeah. Like, she is the only tennis player that I've ever walked past. And this only happened, like, a couple times in Zhuhai. Mm -hmm. But, like, where I walked past and I freaked out. Like, I freaked out. Like, I literally, like, like started, like, speed walking away. Like, freak, like, and while still at the same time, trying to figure out a way to turn back around and just get one last glimpse like i've seen you do that with gwen stefani yeah i did i gwen's the other only i think gwen's the only other famous person where i freaked out about but yeah at india wells mm -hmm. that was awkward um but yeah no so so i i love steffi steffi's the reason i'm into i got into tennis i could watch her play tennis all day long 
I loved watching her beat up on people. She, but in so many ways, like she's the exception to my rule. Like I don't like dominance, but I loved Steffi. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. And the fact that I don't, that I'm like super pro underdog might be another, you know, additional reason why, like I shade the Venus way when I gauge them both, um, both her against Serena. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm a little bit more like, but but I want Venus to be recognized for what she's done, um, and I'm I'm scared that she won't be, um, but 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 I don't think that I necessarily even have Steffi in my top ten list. And mm. again, it's not to say that she's not important, and you know, but what what I think her biggest impact was, and again, I if you wanted to attack this opinion for being totally American centric, I respect that. Maybe that's it. Is that like you know we're Americans again? Maybe she had a far more meaningful impact in Europe than I'm giving her credit for, which entirely possible a hundred percent. So I can see that if that's the case, although again, the tournaments in Germany and the market in Germany never really shored up in the way that, that, that um, one would expect um, having had that, that level of greatness in the midst. And I will say that even, but, even her, yeah, she was simultaneous to Becker a lot too. And so it's tough to right, parse so out what she did and what out, Becker yeah. did and Michael Stieck, even if you want to add a third person in there, like, there were other sure. Germans in the in the in the kitchen. Yes. So so all of that. But where Steffi's I think her biggest impact was a yeah, baseline aggression, maybe setting up the building blocks, although I kind of agree with Ben that that I would probably edge towards Monica in terms of setting up the power game in, mm-hmm. in, in women's tennis. But I think it's just that maybe at least for the modern era, she well, this sounds weird to say. But I guess mainly because of the Golden Slam, because obviously Chrissy and Martina set up levels of dominance as well, um, obviously in the 80s. But um, her impact is kind of her excellence, you know, like that for those years, like she was just such this. Um, she's so freaking good like I, and like so clinical about it. I feel like but I don't. I feel like know she almost like. I feel like she almost like. And this is goes to our definition of the top of the show two hours ago, um, talking about. Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's, I'm, I'm thrilled with all this. Um, that uh, she, that like we were not weighing results very heavily, and so many people I think when they start making their own list on Twitter do that and think you have to look at results as sort of a foundation for how you start having this conversation. And because they're thinking you, ten you, best players. I don't know. Oh, ten best. She's totally easily, different. I mean, she's list. arguably number oh one. Oh my god. I mean, like because she had. I, she had a much shorter career than uh, Serena, let's say, who passed during the open era. Um, she stopped at 29, I think, or 30, right? So, I mean, an age. So, Steffi did a lot and was and was almost like playing, especially when you think about what she did in, like, Grand Slam finals, like, to, you know, Natasha Zvereva and stuff. She almost, like, played past people in this way that, like, yeah. was different than playing with them. and just sort of, like, blew past people in this way that almost wasn't, like, engaging with them. It didn't sort of, like stop and grow anything and she did have she'd had a bit of rivalry with Sellas and uh, actually kind of underrated rivalry with Martina Navratilova when they were having their crossover in the late 80s so there were some pretty good matches at Grand Slams between the two of them which I think people kind of forget about um when Steffi was on the way in and Martina was on the way slowly uh, eventually out um but yeah but in, ter- in terms of just like I don't think that you can discuss why Steffi is quote-unquote important without talking about how much she won and that's to me like, like yes, mm-hmm. okay, she's important that she won tournaments that otherwise would have gone to somebody else. But you know, she to me was that yeah, didn't move the ball forward in a way that really got picked up. You know, like I yeah, don't, that's, I don't, no, I don't, that's a good, that's a fair distinction. I don't see her. I don't see echoes of her anywhere in the sport right now. Um, in a way that almost, kind of, almost a similar way you could talk about 
a little bit very different. This is probably bad comparative literature, but almost like a little bit of the way of Althea Gibson. Like Althea Gibson did these things, which were hugely important, but didn't get didn't have an immediate follow on, even though they were huge. I don't know. Maybe that's right. a bad comparison. But um, so no, that yeah. that distinction that you make is is probably. A, I mean, I think that that's. I don't have Margaret Corbin like, here either. An I'll interesting. Say. It's an interesting one from like a pure like kind of alchemy perspective of, of like you know yeah if you separate her from what she did or if you separate separate a player from what they did on the court and you just look at what they did outside of results what is their impact that's a, yeah that's an interesting metric and and you know i mean there's going to be people who just don't value that at all yeah like that's no like this is a freaking sport there's a freaking scoreboard like you know right like the scoreboard matters, which I totally get. I'm, I do. This very well sets up my number 10 person on my list. <laughs> or not number 10. I don't even know if she was number 10 in terms of being bottom of my list um, because she was not the one. I originally had Steffi on my list at number 10 and then swapped her out for Venus. And I was sort of making my list and just reconsidered that and was like, wait, no, I actually don't think Steffi is all that important for all the reasons we said, but in the way that Venus kind of did more. But the person who was like a very quick, you know, the one who got the format bring it all full circle and you all should know by now who we're talking about um in the news.com.au article which is i think an excuse to put photos of her up more than anything um is about which is the point is uh anna kornikova who is in my top 10 and infamously never won a tournament in singles at the tour level um not even sure below tour level um in the pros but um anna kornikova for those of you who don't know who she is, and you might, if you're new to the sport, you might not know her as a tennis player, but she, in the late 90s, like completely, I think, changed the way the sport looked and was talked about and was interpreted and evaluated in ways that have lasted forever. And it's still are like hugely like what Anna Kornikova did as this person who was known first and foremost for being beautiful and sexy and like was at the this bizarre time in the world was like the dawn of the internet and she was like always in the ranks of like the most downloaded woman on the internet and had you know these like this discussion about her and people going nuts for her in this beginning of search engines beginning of jpegs on the internet people downloading pictures she was of her. real big on alta vista exactly <laughs> i mean like jeeves got asked a lot about anna kornikova <laughs> and there was just like she was there bringing attention to the sport i talked about chrissy being you know like known for being you know it was like was like a great package for the sport because she was like this all-american pretty girl who was also a great athlete and those two went together well anna was seen as being like only beautiful and people completely overlooked and minimized and diminished i think her tennis because she was again not a bad player she's nowhere near the results of any of the previous nine in my list you're in close but she was a top 10 player she was a doubles number one at some point she won a couple of grand slams and doubles with uh hingis in australia and she was i think got to number eight in singles and was a wimbledon semifinalist uh at a young age at 16 in 1997 and so she did you know things that on court she was first really noticed because of her results, but even before her results started, even when she was a junior, people talked about her at IMG, which is all, again, creepy and gross, but it still happens to this day. Like, oh my gosh, you should see this 12-year-old. She's beautiful, you know? And, like, people saw her as this package, and she became that. 
and she became someone who could put butts in seats and who the sport could be marketed around and sold around and positioned around and people trying to emulate her even without her being anywhere near the best in the sport. And her sort of mold of being this like hyper feminine, hyper, you know, you know, exotic, you know, Eastern European blonde and it's like bare midriff and tight outfits and all these sorts of things. I think it's like you can still see that archetype so clearly in women's tennis. And even just in terms of the sort of default look of what people wear on court now, it's a lot of women with ponytails, a lot of like tight fitting dresses, which I think is, you know, if you look at tennis before Kornikova and the Williamses were wearing tighter clothing eventually too, but I think Kornikova did it first. Like she started that whole archetype of this femininity at the forefront and being, like I mentioned before, I think one of the allusions to Kornikova earlier in the show, like she was seen in women's tennis as being corrective to this sort of lavender menace of this cloud of, you know, they're all lesbians. They could be like, no, no, look at, look at Anna Kornikova. She could not possibly be more heterosexual if she tried. She's dating all these Russian hockey players and having this mysterious love life, which is tabloid fodder and being titillating in all these ways that are getting 14 year old boys to chase her around the grounds at Wimbledon um, in this way that was seen Again, important not being good in my definition inherently, but just in terms of being seismic in terms of how the sport is seen and how the sport is still evaluated and why, you know, people still talk about and still care about and still pay appearance fees and still write clickable articles about Jeannie Bouchard in the modern era because she's seen as someone who is attractive to people in the sport and attractive, obviously, meaning physical, but also just bringing them in in a way that is... uh, powerful and and in a way that can sort of rise the tide and floats all boats in a way that more cynical people in the sport recognize and you mentioned sort of earlier we mentioned Billie Jean King's thoughts on Chris Everett but Billie Jean King like for years brought Anna Kornikova back to world team tennis like well after her playing career anytime they had a exhibition match they did the sort of smash hits thing I think it was called the WTT fundraiser thing with Elton John yep and yeah and, and Anna Kornikova was a fixture of that like, Billy knew that you bring Anna Kornikova to something and you get eyeballs. And I think that that sort of her being treated as currency, and she wasn't the first one to do it. Like, there were women who were known more for their looks than for their tennis in tennis for a long time. Probably most, like, most famous one is uh, Gussie Moran, who was in the 1940s, was scandalized Wimbledon by wearing these sort of lace-trimmed panties, which Ted Tinling designed, and had photographers, you know, lying on their stomachs to try to take upskirt photos of her during matches and all sorts of gross stuff like that. Like, they're so sex and tennis had been together for a long time. But I think Kornikova did it in a way that was attention-grabbing and attention-dominating in the sport like none other. And she got a huge amount of resentment from a lot of her peers who were women who had better results than her, better rankings than her, and didn't get anywhere near the attention. And then when occasionally they did get brought into a press conference, they would just get asked about Anna Kornikova. And there was her even more for that. Um, but I, I think that she totally changed the packaging and interpretation of women's tennis. And there's this like expectation of women's tennis now that was interesting. I was, I'm always interested to talk about tennis and particularly women's tennis to people who I know who are not in the sport whatsoever and see what they think of it. And there was something they were saying, someone said this to me, I think last fall, that they said there's this sort of expectation that when you go to a women's tennis match, the players are going to be pretty in a way that you don't think with, like, they said this with, like, with women's basketball was their example, which is sort of like, I was sort of like, it's off-putting to hear that, but I understand where that comes from. And that comes from this sort of Kornikova model that tennis leaned into real hard, both, you know, 
I think, but with some conflict, there are people who obviously resisted Kornikova and her presence, but the impact she had on the business side of it was undeniable. And I think that she, along with the Williamses, um, made women's tennis a sort of sensation at the turn of the millennium that it, that it was and her role in that can't be overstated. And then you mentioned before the geographic side, she is the one who the early Russians point to as being the ones who opened the door. Like Svetlana Kuznetsova gave a great answers. Sveta throws down if about like Kornikova. she's very like are you are you trying to be down on Anna Kornikova because she will defend oh yeah um um and yeah I mean her I mean I I absolutely understand that full argument especially from the business side I, I really do um I also obviously understand people being like wait what but I, think I get people the, balking at it it's like uncomfortable I think totally. to realize it's, her importance it, and and that's exactly and and that's where you know. That's where it, it's tough to to reckon with, and, and it, it, Ben knows this. I think about this topic, very specific topic, all the time within the sport, right? I mean, when you have a sport that has been that has at times leaned into for business reasons, mm-hmm. leaned into you know uh, the aesthetics as being a selling point um, in a way that I'm not entirely sure a lot of other women's sports have done maybe like beach volleyball is the only one i could think of yeah beach volleyball maybe is the only other one but they they, you know but um and then like not talking about like lingerie football and things like that right exactly but like oh you know we're gonna lean we're just gonna lean into it we're you know we're gonna wear certain things you know all that because you know that we can sit here and and obviously like and I, i know that this is how ben feels as well at least i'm pretty sure um, that we can sit here and we can decry that this is the state of the world and we can decry- right. and we can sit there. I mean, I, you know, one of my biggest, when I first was approached to do like WTA insider and was having discussions with, with WTA folks about what this thing was going to be and what I wanted it to be. Like, what does Courtney want this, this venture to be? And, and for me, it was very much like, and I said it very explicitly, like I want to cover the sport the way that I think the sport should be covered, which is as a sport. Yeah. I do not care about the gossip. I do not care. Uh, WTA inside will not be weighing in on fashion. I will not be weighing in on any of that stuff. I'm scores. I am forehands. I am backhands. I'm running stats because yeah. that is not, in my opinion, generally how the women's tennis is covered. Because so often women's tennis is covered on those other things. And there's nothing wrong with that, and in my opinion. It's just that, like, I just it wanted is. to list it. It's just how it is. I mean, I'm not going to fight it, right? And if at the end of the day, you know, we can sit there and say, oh, it shouldn't be this way and blah, 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 blah. No, oh, you know, I'm a player and I'm mad that Maria Sharapova gets so much attention or I'm mad that Serena gets all this attention or I'm mad at Anna Kornikova and whatever – but if their presence in the sport, or I'm mad at Jeannie Bouchard, but their if their presence in the sport means that tournaments are able to put butts in seats, which means that they are they can remain viable, which means that they can make sure that the, the check that they pay you clears. I understand being mad, but really, like. Mm. I don't know about being mad. It's it's got it. It's like it's like I said before. It's, it's the rising tide thing. Like I mean, like when Anna Kornikova or when Jeannie Bouchard or when Sharapova, who obviously had better results than either of the other two, um, are getting this attention for their looks and are the ones who are being put on the billboard, even when they're not, you know, one of the top necessarily handful of players who normally would quote unquote deserve that. 
in a, in a tournament perspective, it's easy to, to resent that. I get that. But they're in there increasing the value. And again, value as a just purely numbers term, purely ratings term of the sport and increasing the paychecks. Like players who have always shunned the spotlight or, you know, not um, like I think one of the people who was most critical, I think, of Kornikova was Natalie Tosiot, who was also in this era and was also just very much a, you know, substance over style, old school kind of player from France. Um, and she, and I think maybe Conchita Martinez, I think maybe in this group too, like, yes, like, I understand why you think you deserve to be more recognized than this woman who's only recognized for these superficial reasons. But like her presence at this tournament is putting butts in seats and selling tickets and getting better TV deals. You know, Kornikova was kind of coming on at the same time as various um, cable sports networks and things around uh, the world and Europe. And I'm sh- I-, I think I remember hearing this could be wrong, but I remember hearing that like she was a big part of the WTA getting the great Eurosport deal that it got at the time and things like that. I mean, there was demonstrable things that Kornikova's presence did to get people watching. And sometimes it was ridiculous. And there were times when it went too far for sure. And, and arguably, I mean, she was put on like center court at Wimbledon as a low women's match of the day when she was not seated. And that's just, I understand that being insulting to everybody. And I get that. But those sort of, that's, and that's again, where important doesn't stick to good. Like, I think she's still right. seismically, right. I, th- I think you have to understand the Kornikova or the Kornikova archetype at the very least to really get a clear picture of women's tennis and why it is what it is in a lot of ways and why, why it's seen how it's seen. And, 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 and the th- I didn't know they mentioned this before, but Kornikova, I, don't, I forget if I said this or not, but she was a punchline. Like Kornikova, there was a segment on uh, the Letterman show, I remember very clearly. It was like they played during the U.S. Open. It would be like the Anna Kornikova like, highlight of the day, and it would be something like her like standing there like adjusting her ponytail, and it would end. <sighs> And it would just be like, ha, 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 she's terrible. Like, she's, like, a joke or whatever. And that's and that was, for the worse, sometimes seen as, you know, how women's tennis is viewed or what, you know, women's tennis was like. But at the same time, people would also root, you know, against her and would see, would cheer for whoever was, like, she got a lot of crowds against her, too. Like, she inspired passions on both directions, like, almost nobody else in the sport. In a very short career, too. She retired yeah. real young. I mean, she reti- I think she last played in 2002 or 2003 when she was in her early 20s. And for, you know, in terms of time spent on court and time spent late in draws, her impact was incredibly, incredibly outsized. And I think she's just a very important person, to use that keyword, for people to sort of understand when you're looking at, at women's tennis and why it's, why it's packaged, how it is, why it's seen the way it is. I think Kornikova is instructive for that. Yeah, there, there's a lot to that i mean i think just adding on a couple of of thoughts i mean i think that she also for her or for worse it depends on your point of view mm-hmm. um you know became quite instructive for or um instructive isn't the word but kind of an exemplar for for agents mm. you know like like that became what agents were looking for like we mentioned this way early in the podcast when we talked about I guess Chrissy about the sweet spot, mm-hmm. right? Like we want you to be good at tennis, but there's also the secondary component of we need you to look good on a billboard. We want sponsors to be interested in you, and that cynical side of things. Because and I remember, yeah, but oh, I was gonna say because oh my gosh, I completely balk at anyone calling Anna Karnikova a flop or a failure. 
because she was the highest paid female athlete in the world. Like if your job at your job is to make a living, she did that better if than anybody else. Her job is entertainment. Her right. If her job is a check, I mean, if her job is whatever you want to quantify it crudely, like she didn't do it in a way that people necessarily, you know, you know, respect crudely, I mean, cruelly, but she did it in a way that was successful. She got her agents tons and tons of money because she was raking in endorsement deals and did, you know, bra ads and all these sort of things and was, you know, I think she did ads for like another early internet term. I think she did ads for Lycos at some point. Like, I mean, she was out there doing the thing in a way well, that and... was, you know, was different and, and has been tried, people have tried to gleam onto parts of it ever since. Sometimes with, you know, not going as full and it, her, she's still kind of considered a slur. You know, if you call a player a Kornikova type and on the tour, that's not a compliment. But people still try to have a little bit of column A and column B in there. But pretty was... sure most people would 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 most players wouldn't mind being a top ten player in their career. Right. Like, no, of course. You know, like that's why the whole the yeah she gets a lot of she gets a lot of stick in a very unfair way yeah. in my opinion because I, I think that if you were at some point a top ten player like you did pretty good like the investment in your career to get to that point and you know that's setting aside any of the, the double stuff that she did when she was a great doubles player but but my point my point with her though which was slightly different is that you know i i in women's soccer for example i will make this parallel yeah. where like because i often because they're my two favorite sports and i want to try and figure out how to get women's soccer professionally working um but um you know, the two very significant players within like U.S. women's soccer, for example, but also because it's U.S. women's soccer, it expands worldwide to the extent that it matters. But, um, you know, were Mia Hamm mm -hmm. early on, who was great, you know, was the all time goal scorer for a long time until Abby Wambach took over. But um, and she was in a lot of ways kind of like the Chris Everett of like women's soccer, yeah. like girl next door somebody that your dad was totally okay with having a poster on your wall, like, you know, like that sort of yeah. thing, non-threatening, super good, like absurd good. So she also had the bona fides to back it up and whatever. And that, that worked for that time period, which um, for Mia Hamm would have been like, you know, nineties um, and stuff. And, and it was somebody that, yeah, that was perfect for that time. The new age person that is the comparable to on a, Kornikova, except that she's accomplished, is Alex Morgan, who Again, is like Kornikova was unaccomplished, but yes, not yes, but like Alex Morgan has at times been like the best soccer player in the world, right? Um, and um, and so you know, but Alex Morgan is the one that in the in this era of like social media and Instagram of whatever, like she's the more sexualized or the most sexualized like female soccer player in the world probably mm -hmm. um, of all time, basically. Um, and she's very good and she's, you know, like, I just want to make sure that people understand Alex Morgan's a very good soccer player um, and like one of the best in the world. But um, but yeah, like, you know, that and so and that opened things up, like because of Alex Morgan, she can Alex Morgan can go get a Coca-Cola deal. The other players on that team probably can't get a Coca-Cola deal. Yeah. But like the fact that Alex Morgan exists, like lifts the entire, um, you know, profile profile exactly of 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 that sport you know and where she plays stadium sellout and so one of the things that cracks me up and ben's heard this example before and this is why it's instructive to kind of what 
happened with women's tennis with Kornikova is that when the women's soccer league in the U.S. kind of like kicked off a few years ago, like Alex Morgan played for a team in Portland and then eventually she got traded and, and played for a team in Orlando. And in both situations, because it's 2000 aughts or tens or whatever, mm-hmm. and everybody's woke and you can't sell things like you got to be like, like, like Slide. fair. Yeah. No, not even sly. You have to be like literally fair. Like, so you had teams like Portland and Orlando who are paying like pretty good amounts of money for Alex Morgan to play on their team because they know that like fans will, they, it automatically made them like the most watched team in the, in the country. Right. But then because of women's soccer fans being like super woke or whatever, like these teams would be reticent to actually market Alex Morgan as the face of their team. Because they they were they wanted to be like hipster about it and be like no we're not going to put Alex Morgan on our tickets we're going to put this player on our tickets who's also very good and the people need to know and that's like really admirable <laughs> and that's like a very like WTA insider way to go <laughs> like in terms of that mentality but you're idiots yeah like I mean that's just the business like if you have somebody with the name recognition and the facial recognition like whatever like you should be selling that person and that's somebody that like that's something that like going back to when we were talking about Billy that she absolutely oh, recognized Billy gets that so much so much yeah and so that's why in my opinion a lot of ways like NWSL the, the National Women's Soccer League in the states like doesn't work because they don't lean into what unfortunately they probably should be leaning into but at the same time we also live in a different cultural time where they'd probably get reamed if they leaned into that, maybe. I don't know. It's an interesting but, question. I mean, like, women's tennis has these vestigial things that help them survive that are not replicable in 2019. Right. You just can't do you them. You could not do... And even no. even things that are in the sport and will that are still vestigial in tennis, like women wearing dresses when they compete. Like, will yeah. that last? Will that eventually get sort of drummed out of the sport by the woke police? I don't know. Very possibly. Yes. And would that be for the detriment of women's tennis as a, as a product? Very possibly. Yes. But would it be less problematic? <laughs> Very possibly. Yes. And so women's tennis it exists in this like weird, like perfect purgatory. That's like, it's problematic and, and fascinating and all oh, that sort of it's thing. Fascinating. It's the best. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. The best. And it, it's the best. It's the best. I mean, no bias, but it's the best. Yeah. But like you know, if they're if Venus isn't wearing a dress at Wimbledon, does Madison Keys exist? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's because she wanted to I wear mean, a dress. To fill that point she out. wanted, yeah, yeah exactly. Sorry, because she saw Venus in the dress, wanted the dress. That's why she picked up the tennis racket, yeah. Madison Keys. Um, but yeah, all these superhero origin stories. But um, but yeah, you know, like that's but that was the thing about Kornikova. It's like like women's tennis leaned in to Anna, like because it. Uh, it worked. It, it worked. And I think that there's something about about women's tennis or I don't, I don't know if this is traceable back to Billy or if this is just kind of in the DNA of the sport ever since. All, I mean, I guess it's not just Billy because, yeah, if you're talking about like Suzanne Longland and like Gussie Moran and like all those players like that. It's just kind of always it's just always going to be part of the sport. And so I think that with Kornikova, the, she just kind of came around at a time and was kind of that perfect person mm-hmm. to, yeah, I mean, take it to, take it to a different level. And, 
And in all fairness, like Anna wanted to take it to that level. Like it, she was never like being asked to do something she didn't want to do. <laughs> like you know what I mean? She was, like she was she, she was calling her own shots for a large degree. Yeah, she was and, not. A which puppet. is like yeah kind of awesome too and that's the thing that i kind of have always loved about women's tennis is that you can have all of those different like everyone because everyone is a is a a, um independent contractor right all the players are independent contractors the wta can't tell them what to do really outside of just like our basic rule book and they just kind of do whatever and um their ranking allows them to play if they Mm -hmm. can you know they can be jerks and blah 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 whatever but you're allowed in nothing's stopping you and which means that everybody can kind of like go about their business in whatever way they want. And so if you have people who want the glam side, they can go do the glam side. And if you want people to just like they're just about the sport and they just want to be like sports people and that's it, they can do that, too. And others can flow into the radar always, and their paychecks yeah. are the same regardless. So uh, they're on court paychecks. Right. So yeah. long as their 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 results are what they are. I've always loved sweet. I've always loved that about women's tennis, just the contrast, the amount of different types of self-expression it allows. I remember very yeah. clearly this like match of the first round of the French Open um, between Nicole Vitasova, who was wearing this like, you know, was kind of in a little bit present presentation wise was in a Kornikova mold, was wearing, you know, the, you know, short, tight dress in the in like a pink girly color or something or yellow or something like that it was very feminine and um small and you know revealing dress and the long blonde ponytail and whatever and she was playing against akul emin morodova who was who if people don't remember akul akul is iconic and was like this six foot four six foot like a big woman from uzbekistan who always wore like backwards hats and like baggy basketball shorts and like men's shirts she wore like the same clothes as marat safin most of the time because they're both i think shared a sponsor for a while or something and so but they both worked. And also, Vitasova won that match easily. And so there was nothing about the, the femininity or the whatever that made her worse or weaker in this way that often women are seen. And masculinity doesn't equal prowess on the tennis court, per se. I don't know. I just found the whole thing like an interesting sort of microcosm of the... Um, and, you know, Vitasova's not the player who's the, who is a Kornikova mold or a Bouchard mold or whatever you want to say. Like, she was not the most, you know... Uh, furthest end of that spectrum, but still the contrast I thought was really interesting. And the sort of possibilities of women's tennis. And you see this all the time now. Compare Camilla Georgie and what she wears on court to what Demi Schurz wears on court. There's still this sort of range of women and how women can be seen and present themselves in tennis that I think is really cool. And that um, it's something, and I hope that diversity in some way uh, sticks around because I think it's a huge strength of the sport. Yeah, it's kind of like this beautiful utopia, right? Like where, I mean, in a lot of ways, right? Because like, because at the end of the day, it's a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. Everybody can go about it their own way. Like you can, if you want to do, if you want to wear one thing, if you want to play one way, like whatever. But at the end of the day, you got to win. You know, what, what happens off the court is separate, right? Because Mm -hmm. that we don't have control over. That's probably less of a meritocracy. Yep. Um, but it's also kind of a complete free market. So maybe it is a meritocracy. I don't know. Uh, just kidding. It's not. It. I, oh, don't. I, I can't <laughs> deal with the idea of like free market antagonists like coming at. Well, there's institute. I know there's institutional free biases. Fair market. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Blah blah. But um. But yeah. I mean, in, in that way, it's kind of like this weird, this weird kind of perfect world where, where at the end of the day, it's purely on merit. But you're allowed to kind of do things your own way. Yeah. 
Definitely. Can I uh, quickly wrap up, just speed round through some people we did not name in our list who got nominated? Um, One person, and I do try to keep this quick. um, uh, Capriati was mentioned, Jennifer Capriati. Um, And I do think that she sort of is interesting in terms of impact and importance for being a cautionary tale and being bringing on the age eligibility rule. And one person, I forget, I should I should know who this is, I don't have it written down, sorry, said that she played the match, which was responsible for Hawkeye. So she should get credit for that too. Um, but I don't, that part's a little, a little silly, but um, that's uh, more Mariana Alves, honestly. But, uh, and that whole umpiring fiasco, that whole tournament, as Victoria Kies, I'm sure, is shouting into her uh, void right now. Uh, this, uh, yeah, so Capriati's there. Uh, Yvonne Gulagon. I, w- I wouldn't put her top 10. No, but she's but top 20. But I can 20. see the argument. She's top yeah, 20. Yeah, yeah, top 20. Yeah, top 20, Goolag- but not top 10. Gulagong, same way. I honestly am a little ignorant, and I don't know enough about what she did to change the status of acceptance and treatment and visibility of Aboriginal people in Australia, uh, which obviously she's one of the most prominent ones in that country's history. And, uh, and so I, I don't know enough on that to quantify it in terms of ranking that there, but that's certainly cultural significance. And she was also just a uh, very cool player to watch again in a way that nobody really emulated but she was just like in terms of just being if you're important by being watchable and cool and Yvonne Goolagong is that question yeah. if not for if if not for Margaret Court is Yvonne Goolagong like Australia's greatest female player oh she's number two behind Court for sure okay just sure. just yeah, triple yeah. checking oh yeah um and Margaret Court we didn't no, but we didn't mention I wasn't much. trying to be cheeky I was just no. I was genuinely no, you, asking no, because that's, my I think that's a pretty yeah, that's okay. pretty clear I think I think she okay. won, yeah, she won like five or six, seven slams, something in that range, and that's pretty okay. clearly number two. I mean, I think the only she's other... a cool lady. Oh, yeah, definitely, and just so Wait, so I... beloved, so like, beloved. Everybody, like, everybody's just... got all the time in the world for Yvonne Gulagong, as John Miller would say. The the Zhang Shui of her day. Yeah, or the Zhang Shui mixed with like Delacqua. It's a good, good combo. Oh, solid. Um, Margaret Court, we did not mention much. Margaret Court is the all-time single slams winner at 24, um, which, again, we were not really evaluating hard. And Margaret Court can get some credit for things in terms of being um, uh, up in the ante physically and being one of the first women to sort of lift weights and stuff like that and start to do that and playing a power, big lady tennis. I mean, like, she was, like, six foot two and called the arm and things like that. And she also was a person who came back after having a kid and, treated that like no big deal in her career in ways that people point to more recent women like Kleisters and Serena and think they invented that when that's actually been Yvonne too. Yeah. Yvonne too. You're right. Yvonne did it also a little bit after Margaret. Um, yeah. Margaret Court did that. I, I, again, I'm not sure that symbolic, like in terms of through lines, I'm not sure what traces to her really per se. But, Careful now. But she's news.com.au uh, is listening. <laughs> um, they're gonna have so many articles. Gosh, putting this guy through the <laughs> ringer. Um, Kobe mentioned Maria Bueno, who I genuinely don't know that much about. I'm not that up on her era. Um, but in terms of making tennis a big thing in South America, I have people tell me she did in these comments. So I'll take their word for it. But there is currently like almost zero women's tennis in Latin America, and so it's hard for me to really yeah, think that she has. A lot. She might have again gotten in this list in like 1980. And it has since, since faded in an opposite direction from like Althea Gibson, if that makes sense. They're right. contemporaneous yeah. players and they might have trended in different directions. No, that's the only thing that I would say about Maria Bueno, which is that like I I mean, without Maria Bueno, you probably don't have like a gap with Sabatini yeah. and you know, and all that. And and um I don't really know if she like inspired all of tennis, like in South America, or just like women's tennis. But if it's 
definitely just if the impact is specific to women's tennis um yeah it's hard right because I, I do think that especially if you if you try to make a market argument of like interest and things like that it doesn't hold um it, yeah. it that's where the argument kind of falls apart yeah but i mean her game style was beautiful like it i mean she was just absolutely lovely to watch i, I, pull, I definitely pulled up like tape to to see some of some of her old yeah some old footage of her playing. Um, and she's like so incredibly revered by the women who play her contemporaries, oh, like yeah. Billy, Mary um, Rosie. Her on this show, just how much she loved watching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Carrillo. Um, so I take, I mean, I put a, a heck of a lot of stock in all that. Um, but that kind of goes more towards kind of, um, best of all you know, yeah, yeah, best or, or yeah, just a diff, I don't know, a different list than this one. Yeah, I agree. I think. And then, because, um, yeah. yeah, sorry. And then um, okay. other ones, two more. One person mentioned, one person said there should be, uh, a email or listener, Gary said this, uh, that there should be more than one original Niner in this list, not just Billy. And they mentioned the obvious next person is Rosie Casals, who was sort of, again, not a slam winner, um, I don't think ever, but in singles anyway, but was like, kind of like Billy's like muscle in some ways, like, was this very cool sort of like getting the job done and really doing a lot of legwork and heavy lifting for getting women's tennis off the ground. And Billy obviously was there doing it. But if Billy is far and away number one, then Rosie helped Billy get there a lot. And sort of was, it was a really good sidekick for Billy in a way that I think is interesting. Um, and again, somebody who would qualify on the important side more than on the best of all time side for Rosie. And then um, – my last one I have is here, and a few people got mentions. Like, we haven't mentioned Sharapova. I don't think Sharapova really makes, again, maybe top 20, maybe, and sort of being a combination of a few different things in this list, but for me, not top 10. The one I other, don't know. We, I actually might put her top 10 yeah? instead of Kornikova. Uh, see? Okay. That, okay, that's fine. I, I, I would understand that. No, I mean, I mean, it just I'll I'll show my work on it. Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I'll sh I'll show my work on it only because another news.com.au article coming up here. Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah, no, I I mean, I think that you know she first of all kind of raised the the this the I mean the the Forbes top like money uh, earning list was pretty much like a thing once kind of like Sharapova existed, like, and, and her domination of that list of being the highest paid female athlete in the world for so many years, I think, um, can't be ignored. Cause again, you know, if money is the message, you know, she, she kind of like was, she was the face of women's tennis from the corporate side for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, in addition, I mean, impactful or not, she is the most high profile, you know, tennis player to, to fail a doping test Yeah, that's true. and just kind of the fallout of that. And, you know, whether or not that has any impact in, you know, the anti-doping rules or things like that, or how things are, are changing on that level. I don't know. Hmm. Time will tell. I do think it's, it's quite significant. And then again, just like being, again, if, if it's not Kornikova, um, I mean, I do think a Russian player should be on the list. Yeah. So if it's not one of these two, if y'all want to put Sveter Dementiev on it, fine. But I, I don't think that the argument holds as much water. There has to be a Russian. I, I, I agree with that. But I mean, in terms of, of just opening up that country and, and the way that, that Russia behind the U.S. is the is the country that is, as of right now, the most represented, right? In the top 100, top probably 200, I would mm -hmm. think. And China will, I think, within the next decade, 
you know, um, add its name to that list. But um, you can't tell the, the, the story of, of the WTA within the last, you know, 15 years without the Russians. And that's really, I think, spearheaded a lot by, by Maria. And she's inspired an entire generation of players behind her in terms of being for all of the knocks, basically the Kornikova that won. Yeah. And so if, if, if the knock against Anna is, is that, if, if the knock against Anna is that she didn't win, well, then you have Maria. And she did. And she brought a steeliness to it, you know, again, similar to what we were talking about with, with Chrissy, kind of a steely. I was say Chrissy. She's the follow-up Chrissy. More than yeah, yeah, you know, the, 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 the pretty girl who was steely, right? The, the Nike, I feel pretty commercial, effectively, yeah. right? And was polarizing in a lot of ways, you know, and so long as you're a player that makes people feel things, I think, you know, that, that definitely helps because it, it lover or hater, um, people definitely kind of, uh, these tennis people always had opinions about oh her. Oh my gosh. Like the amount of, anytime I mentioned anything related to Maria Sharapova, the immediate urgency, which would, with which Serena Williams fans chime in is incredible. Like people care about her, like, like love her, hate her. And clearly that's a hater example. There's this sort of fixation with her that does make her a, a, a predominant, you know, person in the, in the consciousness of women's tennis in this century, for sure. And, and we did actually get someone nominated her, uh, Ido Roth nominated Sharpova and said, uh, all the brand and marketing stuff, bring a sense of professionalism to the presentation and marketing strategies of female players. Again, that's true. And there is like a Harvard business school class about Maria. Um, and yeah. also, and also she says that she serves as, uh, Ido Roth said that Maria serves as a nice stat to bolster the resume of the great Serena Williams, which I think is an interesting argument for both Sharapova and for Margaret Court on this list. Is that both of them have like kept Serena going, and you wouldn't have Serena being this force that she is without a this constant desire to be beating Maria Sharapova, and what she has done with aplomb. I think that's bullshit. And then like B, I don't think that B, no, I don't think Serena thinks twice about that. I I really don't. I don't think that that keeps her going. I mean, if you want to make that argument, I've got Margaret. Sure, but that's just a salty keep, argument. Keeping I, her going no. is maybe the wrong term for it, but definitely that she's like Serena no. has been driven. I think by maria at times i think that's true when they face each other but i i just don't i don't know man i don't know about that one okay that's fair and then the last one i did i've mentioned uh who i think is sort of an interesting would be in my top 20 for sure and again this is somebody who i think maybe is almost like a future althea who will be talked about more when these sort of stories and these sort of athletes emerge more in the future of women's tennis or women's sports is renee richards I think is so incredibly ahead of her time in terms of being um, a visible trans woman in women's sports and all the implications and all the thorniness and all the controversy that that brought on in the late seventies. Um, I think she's someone who will be looked at and sort of remembered in that way uh, in the future. But I think it's kind of too early to know what the long-term story of that is in women's sports, but I think it's going to come eventually. So, Yeah. Do you agree with that? Another, also, another great 30 for 30, Renee. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. Very too. good. So those are your required viewings and listenings. Hopefully we've given you some and readings for this episode. Uh, we really should wrap this up. Uh, thank you, Courtney. Any other last thoughts before I uh, hang up? No, just a reminder. It's all fluid. It yeah. could all change. It's all everything. subjective. And it's incredibly subjective. That's the thing. But it should be a conversation that's fun to have. Yeah. Not a conversation that's like, I don't know. This isn't something to get mad about. 
or like facetious mad in the way that I like yell and curse at Ben for like saying stupid shit, but I, not because like I actually care. <laughs> I, I did my list and somebody was like, how can you not put Stethograph on the list? And I was like, okay, like explain why Stethograph should get on. People got so mad, like quoting that reply tweet being like, he thinks that he needs someone to explain the importance of Stethograph. How dare he do anything in the sport ever again? Don't let him in the press conferences. And it's like, what? <laughs> go away please like what are you what are you talking about here like this is just me asking people to you know en- show, engage, your show your work engage and that's what we've tried to do for because it's a discussion document it's here. not yeah. just about like yeah like every like this is a really boring conversation again to pull up the mason ohio cincinnati example this is a really boring discussion to have if you have 12 tennis fans sitting around a table and everybody goes off into their individual corners and makes a list of 10 and then just sit there and read them off with no with no discussion no discussion just just read them oh okay that's not fun like the fun of this whole question is to talk about it right. to discuss it to debate it but like and to think outside cool the box about too, it. i think too yeah and to think outside of the box like, yeah. which, which was where the cornucopia thing comes well up. and also yeah. to know to know why you think something right yeah. i think that's the biggest thing like if, if my gut instinct is like i want steffi on well why like just explain it and for me, like, it was interesting to, like, think about it and realize, like, oh, my gosh, I don't even, like, want my, like, I don't even think my favorite player of all time, the whole reason that I'm in tennis, to be on this list, why don't I? And to, like, think it out. And, like, that's, I don't know, that's, like, way more fun to me than the end result of it all. Yeah, totally. Like, who care? Who cares about who's actually on everybody's list? I just want to know why you want the people that especially, you want on your list. Especially when it's things like leaving off Margaret, leaving off Steffi, when you're, like, not picking the obvious answers it's inherently more interesting yeah everybody's so. always trying to like come up with something interesting I, I don't think that my list is necessarily interesting but i would hope that like my arguments for or against the players that i would consider on my list i hope that the arguments are interesting yeah. you know what i mean totally like and i hope this can be and that's why like even when people will like put together and they like tweet us and they're like here's my list of 10 and it's like a very obvious 10 that's still not interesting because like Maybe you have, like, a really interesting reason why X person is on your list that, like, nobody's ever thought of. Yeah. Like, that's why we talk about it. There you go. So, maybe you, maybe you, you think go. Steffi's important because she, you know, um, made awareness of German tax code bigger. You know, there's, there's reasons. Oh, people mentioned... People mentioned Amelie Moresmo. Okay, yeah, she did my only, my only thing My only thing about Moresmo, I think, on one hand, she should make the list because of the scrunchie. <laughs> But at the same she time, still wears the scrunchie, I know, but at the same time, the scrunchie had no lasting impact. Sure. Nobody wears scrunchies to this day. And so, you know, it's a little left hand, right? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's a tough one. That's, uh, for any comments on Amal Lorenzo's <laughs> scrunchie or any other issues, please do follow along with us on our social medias. That's scrunchies in the Hall of Fame. And we want to hear your feedback and your comments and your own lists and everything about that. Your objections, your your clarifications, your... Uh, confusions, anything about what we talked about. Hopefully, I think we gave each of at least my 10 women a fair amount of time. So hopefully all of them are pretty established here. But uh, send us your emails with more thoughts. No challenges remaining at gmail.com. Maybe we'll do a sort of follow-up segment if we get enough of a response, which hopefully we do after all this material. You can send us tweets also at NCR underscore tennis. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. And we'll have a discussion thread on this uh, show if people still use Facebook, which I know some people do. But uh others don't is or just come talk to us when you see us and talk to us about, all about why helen willis moody was, was snubbed and how that's unforgivable whatever you want to go with it we're happy to talk thank you courtney thank you ben and we'll see you guys later bye 
Tchau, tchau. I wanna play tennis like Billie Jean King. I wanna serve and volley like Martina can. I wanna be strong like an Amazon. I wanna smack the ball like Ivana Gulagan. Strong, strong. Strong, strong like an Amazon. <laughs>